You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes, Dead Air Knife here with always... Typical Lydia. Lydia, how the hell are you? Not bad. How are you? Not bad. Today's show, we're going to be doing the 2002 Eli Roth written, directed, starring... Not starring. He's in it. Cabin Fever. Him and, like, a bunch of his relatives who have so much Eli Roth clones running around. Like the Baldwins of horror. Yeah. It is like <laughs> the Baldwins of horror. I haven't seen you in a... Fucking dog's age. I know, right? Like my hair grew, my nails grew. Like I'm a little cadaver. I'm back to a cadaver, Wes. <laughs> oh my god. It's not cold anymore. It's warm. It's freaky, eh? I know flowers are blooming and stuff like that. I know. You know else is blooming? This podcast. Is it? Well, I mean, we're doing pretty well for ourselves, I think. I suppose. I don't really pay attention. It's sort of like when people ask me how many books I've sold. I'm <laughs> like, I don't fucking know. Why'd you buy one? <laughs> people are going to be buying more of your books soon. Yeah. I'd like to think so. I suppose. I'm working on Prelady of Two. I heard about that through Twitter, not from actually you telling me. So, thanks. Yeah, I noticed you noticed last night. <laughs> Twitter told me you noticed well, I mean, that's nice. Yeah, I'm um, looking tentatively uh, end of November. Let me ask you this. You, the writer of Night Face, now writing Night Face 2, mm-hmm. um, and we're all waiting for that shit to drop. Me too. And now you have another sequel in the works, and I know that you love sequels. I know, it's like I live for this shit. Yeah, and you know what I like about it? It's no, it's no clever type. It's two. You know exactly where you're getting in on. This is the second one. Yeah, I think of I have working titles, and I, I do definitely joke around. And you're going to do, like, Night Face 2, colon, and something underneath that? Bloodlines? Bloodlines. No, Blood, Fla- Blood Face is, is a working title of Night Face 2. Oh, yeah, I know. Blood Face. Blood Face. Blood Face. I really like that. I, I know, right? But I still want to call it Night Face 2. Colon. Blood no. Face. Colon Garbage Day. Colon Garbage Day. Thank Chris LaGrasse for that one. I'm really curious about what Bloodface could mean. Because we know what Nightface means. Well, people who've read the book. And if you haven't read the book, you should read that book. No, and if you read the book, you would say that the second one needs to be called Dayface. But fuck y'all, it's going to be Nightface 2. Okay. <laughs> I'm like really adamant about this. Uh, yeah, and Prelight Eve 2. Mm-hmm. Colon. Garbage day. What was the genesis of sequelizing Pray Light Eve? Because, um, you know, the, the, the working title of Pray Light Eve 2 is Pray Light Eve again. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> it honestly, truly is. Um, Pray Light Eve was born of being a impatient bitch as a writer and having things like there are particular markets for short fiction that request up to 300 to 400 days to get back to you. Um, flip side, there are markets that get back to you within a day, whether they're going to accept your stuff. So 
there's this, you know, huge, broad range of dates where you could have something submitted and accepted, right? Up to and including like a year and a half or like an immediate turnaround. But shopping your stuff around markets is tedious. I couldn't care less about rejection because all rejection means is that I get to submit it somewhere else. So I'm happy, just as happy to get a rejection. That's a good attitude out there. Oh, some, God. some people struggle with that, especially. Uh, and they shouldn't. And that is, you know, there are writers that have a really good acceptance rate. I have a really high, really good acceptance rate. Mm-hmm. Nearly everything that I submit gets accepted. And maybe that tainted me. So I'll come back to that. But there are writers that are like, well, you got to earn your stripes and you need to have like a wall of rejections. You have to, you know, have a big stack of them. You need to frame them. You need to put them on the fridge. You need to weep into them. I don't know what the fuck people do. With them, but they <laughs> say you got to do something with them. And you got to have a whole bunch. Make them take the tears in that paper and just make some paper mache. Exactly. And then make a mask out of it and wear it around. <laughs> yeah. Um, or something. But that's a really like kind of kind of an old school attitude I find. But anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that my really good acceptance rate from the get go, and just really generally good acceptance when I have test readers and stuff, it it sort of made me very impatient. So I'll submit a story maybe three times tops, four times. There's two, three or four markets that I pretty much send everything to right away that are guaranteed to reject it because they are. Very, I'm shooting very, very, very high. May as well, though. Well, yeah. Like, why why submit to a For the Lover $10 contributor's copy market when you should be submitting to fucking, like, the Weird Tales caliber, oh, yeah. right? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's in tour and places like that. Black Static. You should be submitting to those places first. Mm-hmm. And that's what I do. Uh, some stories I just really, 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 really like, and I want to hold close. And then I end up just, I ended up self-publishing with Horror Moria Productions, um, Prelide, of three stories mm-hmm. that I had written and just wanted out really quickly. Mm-hmm. And they got rejected three times. And it's like three strikes, you're out. Now you're in Prelide. And I really like all those stories. And they're really, really good. And that they had good reception, just not acceptance. And I'm impatient and I could do it. It was also an experiment in, I did the layout. I did all the setup. I did all the pagination. I, it's a photo of me on the cover. Like I did everything, right? So I had a lot of fun doing that. And I want to have that kind of fun again. I've got a small backlog of stories, some that I haven't even submitted elsewhere. Uh, One that um, I never submitted anywhere, but had had posted online for free and had been written uh, and had been read on the Wicked Library. So it's, in a sense, been published on Wicked Library. And there's another story that's in submission right now, pending acceptance, that if it doesn't go anywhere, it'll end up in Prelide Deep 2. And there's a couple other stories that I'm writing right now, and one or two of them, I don't even want to bother going through the submission steeplechase. I'd rather just put them into Prelide Deep 2. That's what I like about you. Um, the, the, the impatient aspect of it is interesting. Uh, well, it's an interesting way of saying it, but I, I think, yeah, in the same way that we made this podcast, because we're just, fuck it, we're done waiting for other people. And we're resourceful. Yeah. So why not? If you have the resources and the ability and that to do this sort of stuff, yeah, just go, what's a, a quick synopsis for our, the uninitiated, the, the first Prelight Eve, what exactly are readers getting into? Three short tales of the untoward. 
<laughs> I love that you changed your voice for that. Well, I couldn't know. You can't use a word like untoward without affecting some sort of transatlantic quasi-British accent and, and lowering your voice like no, maybe a quarter off. No, I'm feeling it. <laughs> no, seriously. And so, and so the sequel is going to be more short stories for them. Yeah. Everyone to enjoy. So everybody, please do me a fucking favor. Let me tell you something about Lydia that's going to make her uncomfortable and she'll probably try to edit it out when I when I say it uh, because we have this new just <laughs> pierce the veil for a little minute we have like this weird thing that we're doing now where it's double editing the show where it's like you send it to me into our Dropbox like almost completely edited and then I have to edit it again. I think the pre-edit works perfectly fucking fine. No, it works perfectly fine. I'm not, I just, I just, it's interesting how that has happened that you're just trying to wrestle control away from me. No, that's not it at all. But I know. But anyway, it's a joke. And it's been going on, it's a joke. What do you mean jokes for? Um, <laughs> that's been going on probably since like episode 25 or so. Yeah, probably. I yeah. would say that. Especially when we started doubling up. Sometimes the edits can be chunky process. There's one episode that I edited in its entirety and I'm not telling you what <laughs> You know what? I don't even remember which one it was. You can't tell. You can't tell. You're that good. Except that we do tend to leave different things in. You'll notice with the um, last episode, WrestleManiac, there's a lot of rough stuff that I definitely left in and the last half I basically left untouched for you to work your magic on. Um, because I felt that that episode needed a little levity. So there is, that's a little bit of a rougher episode, but we're so goddamn good at this shit now. <laughs> you can't really tell. Yeah. But one of the things that you guys need to understand about Lydia's writing process is how, um, natural it comes to her. I've literally sat down next to her while she came up with an idea based off a couple of ingredients fed to her by somebody else to submit a story. And she wrote a story that was so much better than anything I could think of the entire time I was sitting there quietly next to her. And it was instantly the most interesting possible thing that could come out of a story with the ingredients that were fed to her. So you're an incredibly talented writer and you have an incredibly good imagination. And the best part about your imagination is it goes off in a direction that I don't think a lot of people are going to duplicate. Because let me tell you something about a guy whose ideas are a lot like other people's ideas. Um, it's a really impressive talent. It's weird that you would say that. I just had this conversation the other night. I feel like everything I do has been done. And there's so many ideas that you don't hear, that nobody hears, that I only half hear. Because I dismissed them half through thinking like, oh, fuck, it's been done. Everyone's fucking done this. So fuck this shit. It's nice that you put it so nicely, too, because that day I, you basically knocked on the door. And I opened it, turned my back on you and was like, can't talk writing. And I had my phone and I was like writing this shit on my phone. I thought, and curled I thought, up in a ball on the couch and didn't even look at you for like 20 minutes because I'm an asshole. And was just like. Right yeah, I know. I freaking rush over here. freaking all ready to record a podcast. All ready to see my good friend Lydia. And nothing. Just a flat line. You don't give a fuck about me. I'm creating. <laughs> yeah, it was way more cruel than that. But it's nice that you saw through that evil bitch curled up in the corner ignoring you for 20 minutes. That, you know, that's this, that's what every artist sort of wants when they're working is somebody who can just accept that and know that they'll, that switch will turn off in a little bit and they'll be back to normal again. But when that switch is on... 
to leave it alone or it might explode like a powder keg. One of the best and weirdest compliments I've ever gotten in, in my entire life was uh, I used to work with this uh, girl um, and she, we used to have breaks, like the breaks weren't time, but sometimes we would be on break with each other. She always read on her break and she was always reading on her break. And so what I would do is she would be eating and reading and I would sit down and I would just say, Hey, and she'd say, Hey, and then I wouldn't talk. And we would just be sitting together eating and she was reading and we weren't talking. And then one day she closed her book and she said, Wes, I just want to say, I really appreciate that when you come and sit with me you don't talk. It's like everyone else who comes and sits down wants to have a conversation and interrupt me where I'm clearly reading. It's like you, you just want to sit, but you, but you see that I'm reading, and so you leave me alone. And, and I was like, thank you. It leads me to believe that you read too. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I fucking hate people who try to talk to people who are reading a book because it's sort of like they're saying... I see that you're reading a book or like otherwise invested in whatever you're doing. So you obviously want a distraction from that boring, horrible book. So here I am like a jester, like a clown in your court. Um, like you've asked for this shit by reading your book <laughs> and they continue to fucking interrupt you. I would love to just paper cut their face to death. <laughs> so Captain Fever, guys. This movie came out written, directed, and even having a role in. It's for Mr. Eli Roth. Eli Roth. <laughs> let me tell you about a guy. Let me, funny thing about being famous and producing horror is, man, when people love you, they really love you. And then when people decide they don't like you, and do they not like you? He has the Rob Zombie problem. Eli Roth and Rob Zombie have the same fucking problem. They really do. I was thinking about that. I've been thinking about Eli Roth uh, for a few days now, which I'm sure would... He would love that. <laughs> he would love that. Yeah. <laughs> so I was thinking about Eli Roth, and I was thinking about uh, careers in horror, and the, I almost see this interesting parallel between him and James Wan. Hear me out. So my face, like, mm. <laughs> yeah. So you have two young directors that started off in horror. James Wan jumping on to Saw, and then Eli Roth really cutting his teeth. Like to me, when people when people say, "Oh, Eli Roth," I'm like, "Right, Cabin Fever. That's the movie that made him famous." But then, of course, I get corrected. And saying it's hostile. hostile. Yeah. And 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 uh, and so then you have and so what are the and saw and hostile are a particular fucking canon as far as horror and torture porn, quote unquote, though. Yeah, that horrible term that we have to use because I don't know how else to say it. So James Wan after Saw went over like it veered off into one direction, and that direction was what the Blumhouse production type horror. So those types of... Like pop horror. Pop horror. I'm, I'm on a quest to coin this term pop horror to differentiate it from actual horror. <laughs> I'm such an asshole. You're such a um, snob. You want to talk about like complaining about hipsters in a certain remake that we're going to be bringing out. <laughs> such a horror answer. Yeah. Oats. Anyways. Toads and goats, as a kid say. 
I don't think anybody has that. <laughs> but no, yeah. Um, and, and Eli Roth went into a, a, another direction, a, a, away from let's call it pop horror, uh, so our listeners, um, the con- like the stuff like The Conjuring and uh, Insidious and stuff like that. That's what Lydia is referring to as. as yeah, like larger budget, um, yeah, big theatrical release. releases. Yeah. Now Eli Roth went into another direction, and he was producing things, and also starring in a bunch of stuff too. But I mean, we're talking about recent stuff like Green Inferno. We're talking about recent stuff like Knock Knock, and uh, show me another Eli Roth. What's another Eli Roth? Well, he produced Clown. Yeah, he produced which we love, which, uh, which we love. Ski, we, ski. Yeah, ski, ski. As the kids say, <laughs> at least as I say. Um, so, and I feel like Eli Roth has gotten him into whereas where uh, Eli Roth has gotten him into this corner just recently, in the last couple of years, where it's just so much negative press. So I feel like, and the, re- the only reason why I'm bringing this up is I kind of feel like James Wan avoided all like the negative stuff, just produced the work, happy to produce the work, and now he's he's like I'm doing big Fast and Furious movies and stuff like that now. Yeah. Where like Eli Roth um, isn't going in that direction to the point where now he's j- just attaching his name to a lot of horror projects, which I guess he's fine with, but um, getting embroiled with a lot of controversy for stuff. I don't want to get into all of it because it's not relevant to the discussion. No, but, another podcast you can listen to if you want to. Yeah, yeah. And there's definitely people out there who, <laughs> if you don't like Eli Roth, believe me, you already know everything there is to not like about that dude. No, and yeah, and just to like, uh, like not tease everybody, um, goes, and then we've mentioned it on the show before, goes into the Jungle Gate volumes, what, one through four. It's a very long podcast yeah. that details uh, not only Eli Roth's career entirely, but all of the controversy, specifically controversy surrounding the Inferno. Mm-hmm. Excellent, excellent show with Stuart Feedback Andrews and Dave Pace. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. They've done they've done an incredible amount of research, and there's a you'll get it all. Like yeah. holy fuck, you'll get it all. So that's another like aside from not wanting to get into that, because that's not what we're fucking talking about. Uh, but it is, we realize what a giant can of worms, it's not even a can of worms, it's like an oil drum of worms. Mm-hmm. It's a tanker truck of worms. But we're going to take you back, ladies and gentlemen. To the debut. To the debut, to the good old days of making a time that Eli Roth is, is just like, yeah. In an alternate universe, he stayed on, instead of taking that Maverick path, but he was like, you know, the prodigy of Mavericks on all the things that he worked on previous. And he's the prodigy of, say, Quentin Tarantino and things like that. So he is this prodigy of Mavericks. He's taken the Mavericks path. Mm-hmm. And you, can, you can't not applaud him for that. But if, in this alternate universe that I'd like to imagine, he did Cabin Fever and then stayed just kind of insular and wrote and directed everything coming from personal experience like Cabin Fever did with these really close casts and didn't pay attention to really what was tasteful, what was good, what was bad, stuck with things that struck a really deep chord in the soul of horror, like working with Angelo Badlamenti, um, having like these Lynchian influences, mm-hmm. having the Howard Stern influence of having a, almost Stifler-like characters with these really racy lines. And then he would have become this like John Hughes of horror. Because this film, I can't help but think that, and I don't know if I'm nuts or not, right? like I'm probably nuts, but <laughs> it is like, the, it's a John Hughes film of horror in so many fucking ways because it just captures such a weird little 
splice of a particular decade of people, but has all the grandeur of the entire genre boiled down. Between how the characters talk to each other, the musical choices, yeah, I could, yeah, 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 I could, I could see, I could see what you're saying with that. But then that this is the only one out of all of his films that really do that. Yes. The only fucking one. Yes, absolutely. Now, this movie, originally Eli Roth was shopping around for a few years to try to get it made. Um, this was coming out in a time uh, in the late 90s where horror was deemed as not particularly profitable until, of course, Scream happened. And then when you were going to make a horror movie... People basically just wanted it to be like Scream. Now, when I say to be like Scream, and I'm not going to get on the whole Scream thing because I'm pretty sure I've t- covered that on the show, but basically sarcastic, self-referential. And they yeah, wanted to super hit, super hit. They wanted to be like that, and then they said, "People will go look how much money Scream made," and that makes sense. That that's reasonable for people who are trying to make a buck. But Eli Roth uh, held on to it a little bit longer. And was eventually able to make the movie that he wanted to make. Even in the face of being told, like many filmmakers are told, I'm sure. Um, but it seems he took it to heart that it was an unmakeable piece of crap. Yes. Which is weird to me because when people say films are unmakeable, I always think that they're so imaginative and grandiose and complicated that it's not... When people were just like, Dune's unmakeable. I'm like, yeah, I can see why people would think Dune is unmakeable. Or if uh, Isaac Asimov's foundation novels, that's unmakeable. You can't you can't possibly do that. I'm like, yeah, I can see that. Or um, when they were saying that about Watchmen, Watchmen can't be made. It's unmakeable. I'm like, yeah, it's pretty weird. I, I, I can see that. But what, 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 literally, when a dude's shopping around, it's a flesh-eating bacteria in a in a in a cabin in the woods with a few actors. That doesn't, that doesn't scream. No, I'm pretty um, sure, like, looking at this film and thinking of the script, it could be like, you could go from trauma to cabin in the woods level production with this. You could go anywhere with this. Like, wow, that is totally makeable. It's 100% makeable. It's makeable by five people with 10 bucks, and it's makeable by a cast and crew of hundreds with millions. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so unmakeable piece of crap. I don't know who the fuck he's talking to, but... Those people suck. Yeah, like like piece of like piece of crap is is one of those sentences. I was like, that's totally uh, subjective, right? So I get it. If you just don't like the script, you're like this is a piece of crap. I'm like, all right, fair. But unmakeable? That is. <laughs> yeah, that's a fucking. No wonder he grabbed it by the balls and ran with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is very makeable. This movie did come out in 2002 eventually got wide release in 2003 but um what we have here is a group of i'm just scared because the thing came the screen turned off and i was like i'm terrified (laughs) what we have here what we have here is a group of young people just in the prime of their life and they've just finished college and they what they want to do lydia is they want to Strive onto the woods and have a week of just drinking and fucking and having laughs and just blowing off some steam. They've worked hard, and I believe them. But I don't know, things are going to go horribly wrong because it's a horror movie. Thank God. Because if this was that movie that had no horror in it, I wouldn't watch it. <laughs> this is apparently based on uh, Eli Roth had been in Iceland on some sort of trip 
and developed some skin infection mm -hmm. that had grossed him out, freaked him out. And like any good story, it's got that little nugget of experience that the author had had. So when I was a when I was a kid, I was walking around. Uh, we have cottage for those who don't know, and. Um, it's uh, it's off in the wood. It's a lakefront property. It's really beautiful, but there used to be uh, a wall structure. Like the the cottage is on a hill, and everything is held together by a retaining wall. The retaining wall used to have three levels to it back in the day before it got rebuilt to just have one level. But the, on the on the sec or the the second level, basically, it became a place for like scrap wood. I don't know how that happened. It was just, oh, if you're going to burn stuff, it just kind of ends up on the second level. So for whatever reason, I was crawling through that because I was a kid, I guess. And I was just wearing sandals and I took a step and sure enough, a rusty nail just went right through my foot. And uh, so obviously I freaked out. I got a nail in my foot. Uh, I got it out. And because I just had to raise my foot and pull it out, it was still stuck into a big piece of wood. And then my father proceeded to scare the shit out of me with all the different types of things that you could get infected by. And I, for some reason, my child brain focused on lockjaw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tennis. Yeah. And so... I was upset. I kept like moving my jaw all the time to make sure it could move. Well, everyone like cleaned the wound. I mean, they cleaned it and everything was fine. Yeah. But I've always had this problem with being in the woods. Like from that point on, I'm always very careful with being in the woods and being wait, clean and making sure I have no open cuts because I learned about just all the things that horrible. Especially, especially another irrational fear I had as a kid of streptococcus. Oh, flushing bacteria. Yeah, yeah, I always have a big fear of that. Paper cuts, man. Oh, yeah. Because that's what they always say. It's like, oh, it was totally, they pricked their finger, they they stubbed their toe, and then all of a sudden, uh, three days later, they had to amputate their leg at the hip. Or um, one guy uh, that I knew up at the cottage, he apparently died of streptococcus, and that was up there. So I was just fucking, that's a nightmare. Kind of fever is a good fit for me. <laughs> Because <laughs> it, it combines two of my least favorite things, the woods and infection. I think aside from all the things in Cabin Fever that I love, love, love so much, because it's like kind of backwoods and it's really gory and stuff like that. Um, it has female on male anal sex-ish. And yeah. it's also got a lot of just really horribly like racist and sexist horrible lines i think those are the two my two favorite things is the ass fucking and the use of words like retard gay and nigger well yeah they definitely do that which i felt fairly believable i've known enough people in my life that especially especially back in those days i mean everyone's a little bit more careful i find maybe it's just because i hang out with more adults than <laughs> young people that I did in 2002 but I feel like everyone's a lot more careful with how they throw those words out these yeah days. a good example would be the remake where it's sanitized yeah entirely for this day and age I suppose but even then it was not that those things were acceptable mm -hmm. um 
in the previous episode, we vaguely referenced Clerks. But if you think of some of the things said in the Clerks films, and specifically Clerks 1, same sort of idea. It was things that generally weren't accepted, and the writers knew that. It wasn't like they didn't know that. It wasn't like they were coming from a, a group of people that just talked like that all the time. They realized how socially fucking inflammatory all of that kind of talk was. Same thing with Eli Roth. But that's the reason it's in there. And it's also that it's realistic to the people that he's writing about. These characters would fucking talk like that. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite line, and the very scant notes that I took, because I've seen this a couple times, been on my mind a lot, so I didn't need to take as copious notes as I normally would. Mm-hmm. Um, when fucking Bert has his gun... <sighs> And he's, yeah. yeah, traipsing around the bush, gonna go shoot him some squirrels, and his friends are like, "What the fuck?" Because he'd like left the fire burning and then yeah. walked away from it, and they had to deal with putting the fire out, and they were pissed off at him already. And uh, he's like, "What the fuck? You got a gun for?" He's like, "I'm gonna kill some squirrels." I'm like, why do you want to fucking kill squirrels? He's like, "Cause they're gay." And they're like, "Don't be retarded." <laughs> that happens pretty early in the film, yeah. and if you can't handle that then there's a lot of other tiny little things in this that are going to irk you pretty badly but then you maybe shouldn't talk to anyone at that time who had just gotten out of college either yeah so this trip is definitely something that everybody has been looking forward to and it's a good opportunity for uh, certain characters to get together Uh, Paul who is I guess the star of this film our final boy he is going up with a childhood friend of his, Karen. And then there's Bert, who just seems to be their tired stoner friend that doesn't actually smoke any weed. Yeah, he does strike you as a stoner character or like a stippler or yeah. something. Cause it, but he doesn't like Mac the ladies or whatever it is people say. Mac. Well, but, but uh, it seemed like both of the, the ladies were at least at the time spoken for. So he probably was just like, yeah, I'm the fifth. I'm literally the fifth wheel. The, this, the... Remake is a little more weed-centric from the beginning. This one does have its weed moments, but it's yeah. not, like, weed-centric or, like, technology-centric or any of those really popular things to hinge on in the film mm-hmm. to make it relatable. When we're going up, the first weird encounter that these guys have, it's not quite encountering, like, the weird kid playing a banjo, like, in Deliverance. It's not that, but it's... Similar. Yeah, Dennis is very similar in a way. Yeah. But it's a... He's a lot more dangerous. It's a lot more dangerous, but it's also a lot more fun. Mm -hmm. And a little more surreal. He's a very, like, uh, Lynchian character. Very David Lynch. There's a lot of little David Lynch influences in him. And not only the score being done by um, David Lynch's partner in crime, Mr. Bablamenti, but... I find Dennis to be just a really surreal, almost dreamlike character, almost something you would encounter that would be your, your nightmare quotient of a normal dream. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Almost as if he's going to show up and deliver some sort of soothsayer knowledge to you. Pancakes. Pancakes. What could that possibly mean? Well, at least we do know, do not sit next to Dennis. I wish they had had the sign in place at the beginning for the character's sake. That kid bites Paul's hand like... Yeah, <laughs> and all he does is sit down beside him. But you know what? I want to bite somebody who sat beside me and was like, part of their sport. I'd just be like, what the fuck? It's weird. I, it would never occur to me to go to a, a general store seeing kids sitting out on a, on a bench swing and saying, I'm going to go make friends with this kid. I was like, we're really just stopping in. I'm not... 
you just clock that that kid's there. It's like, oh, there's a kid sitting out there. And then you go into the store, you get your wares, you get the fuck out. Like, it's not... I don't understand why he's like, I'm going to sit here and talk to you, kid. And it's sort gets, of like a subtle dig of like, you know what? You're you're a second-rate citizen. I can do whatever I want. I can walk all over you and your property and your things and your <clears throat> lifestyle, and I can make fun of you. Like, it's a really subtle version of that. It is very subtle because I was going to say that I don't really... These characters are not coming across to me as... Well, douchebags? Well, they're not coming across to me as douchebags who are coming to this place like city slickers and they don't and they're like oh look at all these bumpkins huh (laughs) it's not like that it's not as like for for example the kids in um in in uh like pumpkin head who are who are really kind of making fun of the locals when they're passing through or they're really just they come across to me as more like the kids in Friday the 13th who are just like, well, we have to be part of this. Like, we're here. We're not going to be mean to anybody. Um, but also, we are from the city. We are college kids. And there's some old people here, and they're going to be saying some funny stuff. We don't, like, for example, they're, they're dealing with, like, the shop owner who's this uh, wizened old fella who seems pretty jovial, talking to them all about fox piss and, and, and all that kind of stuff. But they're not, they're not doing anything, like, derisive towards them. Now, uh, Dennis's father doesn't really like anyone going around his kid because of the fact that his kid fights and his kid clearly has some uh, mental problems. Uh, he seems to not really like outsiders, but it, again, it's very subtle. It's not like he's sitting there aggressively whittling and just like staring at you or, or another. We're not saying like we don't like your kind. We don't like your kind. Or another thing uh, that they usually do in these types of movies that they're trying to show that the the country folk don't care for you citizens like is 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 when when uh these characters show up at their and they're like hi and then one of the the locals will just sort of lean forward and spit like this disgusting <laughs> spit yeah. that you've never seen before that's usually an indication of like yeah fuck off pal but then none of that they're not at all yeah, it's bad. And, and also, these people don't like your kind. Yeah, also, these people don't seem particular. They don't seem uneducated or anything like that. They just seem that they live in the country. Yeah, no, you and know. that's what I really appreciate about the introductions here of like East meets West, right? Like it's mm-hmm. very, very subtle. These kids are capable of being in the woods. They want to be in the woods. They yeah. enjoy being in the woods. They know what to expect from being in the woods. Yeah. These country folk live in the country, enjoy living there, have dealt with city people a lot. So there's no like real. There's no huge chasm between these two lifestyles. And it's super subtle, the little tiny differences that do exist. So we're... It's far more realistic. Yeah, yeah. I feel, I feel yeah. it's realistic. I feel like these are characters that could easily be in around my own, my own cottages. Like there's definitely people out, like in the... the the town, the close by town, they're just like that. Just you know. oh, I know, I know, definite representations of every single character in this film in real life, except maybe Dennis. Yeah, I don't know a Dennis myself, and I wish I knew Winston. <laughs> um, so one of the things that we encounter very early on in the film is a guy that seems to live uh, deep into the the woods as a, as a hermit. He is hunting for some rabbits and he encounters a dog, and I, I, I guess it's supposed it's to be his dog. It's yeah. his dog, and he's trying to get his dog to react to the fact that I got a dead rabbit here, dead rabbit here. And I guess he thinks his dog is sleeping. He raises its paw and the whole, 
dog just splits. Yeah, rib cages. At the rib yeah. cage, it just pulls apart. Yeah, and it's not it. not like the thing. We're not talking like that where it splits like a banana, but it's kind of... It's being gored. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It, it seems to be falling apart under the weight of itself. Like, it's just... And, and, and he gets blood splatter on his face, and that basically starts this... Puts this whole thing in motion. So whatever this dog caught is now infecting this man who very rapidly is deteriorating. Now, we don't see him for a little while. Meanwhile, our main characters are all up at the cabin getting their stuff together. And, you know, Bert's going to go shoot squirrels. Uh, Marcy and Jeff? Marcy and Jeff. Marcy and Jeff are going to have sex. Paul and Karen are going to hang out in a floating dock. You know, it's it, honestly... It, these scenes kind of dragged on for me a little bit, but at the same time, I got it. You're establishing that these are good kids that are really just trying to have fun in the woods and they're not really up to no good at all. And all of a sudden, while Bert is out shooting squirrels, he encounters this guy. Now this is starting the first of, shall we say, faux pas that the characters will be making. So he thinks that He's had a few to drink, and he doesn't really seem to be the brightest guy in the world. He's got a BB gun, and he is going to shoot at the squirrels. He thinks he's he's going to shoot at a squirrel, but instead he fires on this guy. And when the guy, when he sees him, he's bloodshot. There's heavy reddening around his skin, rashes. It doesn't really look like he's falling apart just yet, but he's... Definitely not, ill with something. Yeah, he's not doing too good. Affecting his skin terribly. Now, Bert goes from... Uh, Bert is an idiot. And he throws out words like whore and slut. Like constantly. they're going out of... To his friends, too. Just shut yeah. up, slut. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, constantly. So, I mean, yeah. He's not the best at communicating. He's a bit of a dumbo. But he seems like a genuinely good guy. And if he needed help, he would probably help you out. Yeah, he's but, a super temper. That's been established even from the get-go. So... He also, man, does he, he is a big fan of freaking the fuck out because immediately once this guy starts approaching him, he wants him to stay back. He realizes that he's sick and he doesn't want to catch whatever it is. He doesn't know what it is, but he knows that this dude is sick. So he yells at the guy to stay back. Is that, and the guy wants to know, is that your cabin? No. And then in order to get him away from him, he fires the gun off onto the ground and then he leaves. Yeah. The guy falls into a little ravine cause he's like, you know, not doing very well, not very healthy. He's probably lost blood or whatever. So he's stumbly and yeah. inco- semi incoherent. He's, he's probably, he's fevered, right? So he's yeah. probably pretty fucked up. So he stumbles and falls into a ravine. Yeah. It, it, but here's the thing. This is the one thing that the fucking was driving me crazy. Not driving me crazy, but the fact that when Bert goes back and uh, uh, Marcy and Jeff are trying to put out the fire that he started, like it had kind of gone off the rails there. He acts like nothing has happened. He acts like he was shooting at a squirrel and he missed the squirrel and fucking relax and okay, it's a fire. We're in the fucking woods. Like it's fine. You guys got it. Leave me the fuck alone. I'm going back to the cabin. Yeah, this, which the, the number one thing you would do as soon as you encountered any of your friends be like, there's a guy in the woods and I shot him by accident and I think he's sick of something. What the fuck? By the way, he's not far away. This man could see the cabin. <laughs> yeah. So it's not like, 
oh, I've, I fucking encountered this guy like 12 miles up the road, uh, uh, but I lost him and he doesn't know where we are. I, he knows where you are. He literally could see the cabin from where he was standing when you shot at the ground and he fell into the ravine. That is what? How long did it take you, Bert, to walk from here to the cabin? That's how long it's going to take him to walk there afterwards. <laughs> so you you may as well let everybody know. Because when this dude shows up again, he seems genuinely surprised that he tracked him down. It's weird. So we cut to the kids all hanging out at the campfire, burning some marshmallows. Paul tells this story about a bowling alley. It's one of those, it's, it's, it's like a campfire story, but I prefer my campfire stories to take place in the woods to get everyone in the mood. So you're telling me a, a scary story about a bowling alley. I don't care because there's no bowling alleys around here. I, I like the bowling alley story. It's a good story. Yeah. Um, I like it every time I see it. I've, seen, I've watched this movie maybe four times in my life and mm-hmm. I like the bowling alley. Story. This is number two for me. Oh wow. I know. Like we were partway through and you were like, I don't remember this or this. Like yeah. bigger <laughs> plot points. Yeah. But um, some of the more interesting, weird. It was like, I remember the last 30 minutes of the movie. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I remember all of this. But I didn't remember any of the fucking start. That's crazy to me. And my memory is really good. Oh, totally. So I, I was shocked. And I was thinking, okay, so this movie came out. I was 18 years old, thereabouts. What what the fuck? Like, what was I doing? You could have been watching it in a group of people that were distracting and not interested in it. I that could be it. Yeah. Did you see it in theater? No. I now I'm grilling no. you. I'm sorry, what? Now I'm grilling you. I've got one eyebrow up in it. I didn't see it in the theater. I saw it on uh, the movie network. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Who knows? Maybe you just weren't interested or there's something else in your mind. Ah, maybe. Girls. Likely. <laughs> Nothing's changed. Um, so this is, the, this is the part where the, like, the xenophobe in me really starts to go crazy because they encounter a stranger. You don't get much stranger than this guy. No, here comes this fucking dude with this German shepherd that does not seem friendly. Dr. Mambo? Dr. Mambo. He's a doctor. A doctor of dogology. He's like a professor. Professor of being a dog. (laughs) You know what? If there was one person I would really trust to know what they're talking about when it comes to dogs, it's a dog. Yeah, no, it's true. Yeah, it's true. As a matter of fact, yeah, I would prefer if all vets were probably just dogs. Maybe cats, (laughs) but dogs. Because dogs could, like, lift heavier equipment, I feel. Anyways, I'm getting distracted. So they encounter this guy, Justin. He looks like a Justin, but he mostly looks like a Rob, because it's Eli Rob. Yeah, it totally is. His uh, nickname is Grim, which doesn't really fit. (laughs) It doesn't... I know. Okay, so if you're a dude and you are, like... Hey, everybody, I'm Justin. Justin's your buddy. Justin's a guy with a pocket full of fucking weed. Justin's a guy who's a, got a dog in the woods in the tent. That's Justin. He probably bikes to work every day. Oh, you know it. Grim? Grim? Grim is a dude I knew in high school that looked like Joey Ramone and was like 85 feet tall and did nothing but draw fucking album covers with like skulls and demons on them all the time and then like yeah. give them to you in the most not creepy quote unquote way he could ever fucking imagine. That was Grim. That Grim was fucking awesome. That's Grim. Yeah. Like, exactly. As a like Grim, he likes his t-shirts black, his fucking metal loud. 
and he's gonna draw you album covers. That's grim. This dude is Celtic Frost all the way. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. So this guy's like, I'm Justin. People call me Grim. No, they fucking nobody. It's like, how much you want to bet that Justin was just like, okay, we're in the woods, new group of people. No one. Whoever I am. It's like, okay, always wanted to be called Grim. Gonna try it on for size. Here it goes. I'm Grim. And they're like, oh my god, they bought it. God, I'm grim. Finally. <laughs> Do you think that was it? I bet that that's I have no exactly. fucking idea. No <laughs> fucking idea. Because all I, like, <clears throat> people call me grim. No, they fucking don't. Moving on. Like, I just totally discount it. <laughs> and then I remember all the cool artwork that the grim, the actual grim, used to draw. Yeah. His real name was Jeremy. Wow. Am I right? He, he sounds like a better grim than a Jeremy. Way better from Grim than Jeremy. Just like Grim is a better Justin than anything else. <laughs> now, immediately this guy seems weird to me. But A, it's Eli Ross, so it's weird. But like, B, like, what is with your dog, dude? But he's just a dog. The dog does not like them immediately. None of them were infected in this dog. Dog's smart. I don't know. Dog's a good dog. I think my dog's a good dog. I don't think he's a good dog. It steps down. He says, you know, they said, is your dog friendly? And he's like, yeah. And then the dog starts not growling at them anymore. Yeah. Dog's fine after that. He sits there for a while. The dog doesn't eat anybody, so I'm proud of the dog. Yeah. I'm also kind of fine with Grim, because he kind of looks like Wayne Static. If I was sitting around a boring old campfire listening to a fucking bowling alley story, which isn't so bad, and then Wayne Static walked in and sat down, weed or not, I don't care about the weed, but I think he's all right. I immediately don't like I don't like strangers entering my circle and and saying, I want to hang out. It's the circumstances that I just don't like. I don't like a stranger just being like, we're friends now. I'm I think I also just think that this Jeremy character is far more interesting than any of the other characters there, with the exception of Bert. I mean, I can understand your point in that aspect. I just think that it's weird. It is weird. And it's weird that he would just be like, I don't know. I, I found that weird in that country, too. Uh, it's a couple out in the woods and this dude's just kind of like creeping on by and sort of invites himself and the girl like invites him to come and sit if there was a guy walking by my campsite i if, if i'd wave at all because i'm really bad for not waving at people that i see out in the bush when you're apparently supposed to do that or say hello and stuff like that when people walk past you um i wouldn't be like hey how's it going how's your day how about you come and sit with us let's have dinner here have half our food that we had to bring in here on our backs like no, no, no. So I, I do get your point there. I just think that Grimm's not a bad choice as far as stranger danger. Yeah. Because it's not like you're standing outside a bar and you're all having a smoke and this guy's just like, what's up? You're like on a trip in the middle of the woods. You don't, you're far away from everybody. And the, and the stranger kind of comes out of nowhere and is just like, and then, and then he, I, like, he's like, I guess I'll just smoke all this weed by myself. He pulls out so much weed. And then, and I was like, oh, no, come on, we want this weed. I'd be like, I don't care. You could have fucking a pound of weed. I wouldn't care. Go away, weirdo. Yeah. Shake face. Yeah. Yeah. Your dog is mean. I don't like it. I wouldn't have even started talking to the guy. Yeah, I would have just said, if, we, if none of us move. Maybe, <laughs> maybe he can't see us. Maybe he's like the T-Rex. His vision's based on movement. Well, they sort of tried. One of them did try to deflect by being like, hey, it's kind of part of the conversation. Yeah, it's true. It's weird. Now, 
It's, yeah, but weed, and I guess that's the equalizer now. It's going to rain, and so <laughs> Grim is going to fuck off, go back to his tent, because he's got, like, four grand of stuff in his tent. But he's going to come back. He's, he's going to come back. Yeah. He never does. Uh, you almost think he does when the next knock on the door, though. It's true. The next knock on the door is not Grim. It is this guy who's infected, and he needs help. And he, he instantly recognizes the guy in the bright orange shirt and the green F.U. hat that <laughs> yeah. shot at him earlier. And as... says as much, too. Like, hey, you shot me. <laughs> <laughs> and now they he really just needs a doctor. He needs help. He's sick. Yeah. The guys say, uh, well, no, no, you're, we stay out there. We'll try to help you. I don't know. The, the man becomes impatient. He starts, to, he's going to go take the vehicle because he's just, I'm sick. I need, I need out of the woods. If there's, um, a really good modern counterpart to this sort of thing and these sort of mixed reactions and how all the varied mixed reactions sort of like combust into what the group of people actually ultimately end up doing or deciding to do, whether as a group or not. Um, Nick Cutter's book, The Troop, the Troop, yeah, The Troop, um, is sort of similar where an infected person ends up sort of like busting onto the scene. And then it's that moment of like, and, and a lot of really good infection horror has these like almost zero day moments, right? Where the infected person interacts with a group who don't know what to fucking do with this, you know? Um, it's like trying to hold a fucking handful of jello. Like, you know, no one really knows how to cope with this when it's thrust upon them. And it always sort of starts with the, you just go stand over there while we all stand way, way over here where it's nice and clean and safe and with our fucking hand sanitizer and fucking we'll decide what to do with you forcing that person into having to fend for themselves hmm. because they've probably exhausted a couple avenues of help at this point already or done what they could, or this is the first glimmer of hope they have that has rejected them. Right. So of course guys are going to jump in the fucking truck and try and steal it. That's what I'd fucking do. Mm-hmm. Being as impatient as you are. Fucking yeah. <laughs> These guys uh, are not having it. They run out to the van and then they just, like they're at the bonus stage of a Street Fighter game, fuck this car right up and they're smashing it. They're trying to scare him away. I was like, it's probably less scary to him that you're banging on the car, smashing out the windows, shooting at the vehicle, smashing out the, the front lights. Just while he's, by the way, he's projectile vomiting blood <laughs> all over the interior of your vehicle. He's got bigger problems. Which is freaking them all out. And, you know, they've got this mob mentality all of a sudden out of nowhere mm-hmm. um, of, like, we need to stop this guy. But they're all of a sudden not too worried about preserving him as a human being. Uh, it doesn't seem to matter if he's going to get hurt, you know. But they're all, like, very, very scared. Mm-hmm. They're all very, very fucking shocked because he's all of a sudden come looking very horribly, you know, destroyed and rotted and stuff. And these there's blood all over. Now there's blood all over their truck. Their truck is getting fucked up. They're all probably scaring one another because there's guns going off. There's glass being shattered. There's fire 
because someone has a torch for some stupid fucking reason. Well, Paul grabs a piece of wood that was out of that was in the fire that uh, I guess had still been lit. Mix that with a can of hairspray, which is a or bug spray or whatever it was, which is a yeah. Marcy, uh, Marcy and Karen. Karen had a, a, a knife and was saying that you stay the fuck away from me and oh, I will stab you. Uh, I love that she did grab the butcher knife because there's a few really good little camera techniques and foreshadowing there uh, when they're all sort of scrambling for weapons and the whole scene is taking place with all that in the background and in the foreground is just this huge butcher knife and I'm like, yes, grab the knife, grab the knife. Mm -hmm. Marcy uh, sprays the guy dead in the face almost like using, it's like a bug spray or hairspray or something. She's using it almost like it's a mace. Yeah. Not anything would sting the eyes. It's like an aerosol. It's something. Yeah. So um, then Paul tries to bat him away with the, the fire stick, hits a guy in the arm. He lights up like a fucking pine tree uh, and <laughs> runs off into the woods, just like completely on fire. Later on, there's a really good line about like they're arguing about what they're going to do and, you know, how they didn't help this guy. And Karen turns around with like, he came to us for help and we set him on fire. <laughs> Which is like a beautiful line. There's a couple of brilliant, really like unintentionally hilarious fucking scenes like that. There, there really are, and I think that it's one of those. See, like for example, they they do a couple of techniques in this film, very intentional about breaking tension when things get a little too serious. So even when Paul is telling the bowling story, um, Bert's gonna laugh and spit out. Uh, marshmallow very comically when they're dealing with the aftermath and this movie keeps going back to the fact that this guy asked for help and then the next thing we know we set him on fire and so people were remembering things that happened back in the movie which i i mean it's 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 sometimes it's effective sometimes it's ineffective but i think what roth is trying to get across is just the fact that these are normal good people and holy fuck how did things get this bad how did we become a group of people that had to kill a man yeah and in a very brutal way and it just all happened so fast and we were so scared and what the fuck do we do and just really different shades in each person come out very clearly about how much they value the lives of others Mm -hmm. karen is uh, easily the most upset about this the most physically upset and also and so everyone kind of agrees she's emotionally scarred over this and she wants to go home yeah for for sure i was like definitely like look when when a crazy guy or sorry an infected guy comes to your place tries to see your car you level your car it's covered in blood you light him on fire he runs into the woods to his death parts over (laughs) (laughs) i don't know man i don't know man well you know talk to winston about when the party's over I don't think the party's ever over to Winston. Now, we are going to have to deal with these characters who have basically fucked up their own car. I don't know exactly. I'm assuming the the, the damage that they did to the car, I was like smashing windows and banging on the, and dending, uh, denting the frame is not going to stop your car from starting. I'm assuming that when Bert shot his gun off, yeah. he probably did something to the car. He could have shot something in the rad that was in liquid, or he could have shot a plug wire loose. Like, yeah, it he, could be something He could have done anything. I'm assuming that it's the fact that Bert shot at the car is why it won't start. Because everything else, I was paying attention. Everything else to do to that vehicle. Yeah, they smashed windows out, smashed headlights. Yeah, I was like, it's all cosmetic damage. The vehicle would still start. It's a big truck. Are you telling me that, like, you hit it, like, five or six times with a baseball bat, and now the engine won't start? Like, that's not, that's not really how it works. But 
they need to find a way off. Now, Marcy gets into a canoe and goes across the, the way. The boys head off on foot to try to find the nearest place that they possibly can. They come across a woman who is a pig farmer and she is slaughtering the hogs that are sick. Now they come in contact with her just in the, while she's uh, disemboweling one of the hogs and just absolutely irate because of the fact that the meat is big. Oh, she passed. She's like, you tell Murray I can't eat this. Would you eat this? And yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a completely spoiled. They're pretty freaked out. It's a, so you understand that, okay, the livestock around this area, this infection is around. It's definitely spreading and... You know, at, at first, you're almost starting to think, like, I think everyone's fucked because it could be airborne because the dog was sick, seemingly un- unrelated to this pig, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, she's pissed. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, when they ask for help, she's very reluctant at first. She's in a bad mood. She's having a bad day. You know, this livestock is money, right? And, and so if it's all spoiled... Well, fuck, you're fucked. Yeah, right? it's not until they kind of half clue in and go like, we don't know Murray. Yeah. That she's like, oh. Oh, and, yeah. and, we, and so there's no phones, no, there's no uh, power, well, there's no phones, there's power, but there's no phones around these places, so they use radios. Now, they tell, they explain to her what happens, and she's sympathetic. Someone, really, something, someone came out of the woods and attacked you, that's crazy. Well, it's a family member of hers. Yeah, they notice a picture on her, like, sideboard, and it's this guy, and they're like, oh. Uh, yeah, it's like her cousin or something. She's like, "Did you say that you hit him with a baseball bat?" And they're like, "No, no, 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 no. Actually, actually, we're just gonna go. We're gonna go, and we're just gonna walk. We're gonna walk. We're we're out of here. We're gonna walk." And so they get away. Has a few weird reactions like that, aside from Bert continuously doing things and then not owning up to them for whatever reason, even though he has no reason to be ashamed of what he's done ever, except mm-hmm. well, maybe shooting the guy, but like. It's much better to come clean about things and be fucking honest, but they hide these weird things. Like, I don't know, they they hadn't said that they, like, set on fire. Mm-hmm. So they could have gotten away. It was just like, we don't know what happened to him, but, like, he fucked up our truck. Why? But still get the help that they need mm-hmm. and, you know, maybe own up to it later. It's probably the fact that they were terrified of this woman. They literally saw her uh, friggin' uh, cut a pig right down from like completely open and then scream and punch and hit it. So they're probably just afraid of her. Yeah. I like that. She was kind of like using it as a fucking punching bag. Yeah. Like Rocky. She was uh, pissed. Yeah. For real. She was pissed. So they get the fuck out of there. Uh, Marcy gets to this place. It's, it seems to be a fairly nice home that's on the waterfront and no one seems to be home. Yeah. Which is like a horror movie one on one. If no one's home, and the door's open, just walk on in and start eating your beef jerky. Bert and Jeff are already in there, but they also agree, yeah, there's no one here, so they go back to the cabin. As they're trying to figure out what to do, it becomes, we as the audience know that where's that body that got lit on fire? Well, it's in the water. Where in the water is, there's a pipe, a direct pipe, all the way up from the reservoir to the cabin. That's where you're getting your running water from this cabin. It's out in the middle of the woods. Yeah, we're told this was a little tiny, like, segue um, where the camera follows from the body. And we see that it's in their drinking water. And who do we see drinking the water? Karen. Poor Karen. Poor Karen, the most concerned of all. And someone who, if you were to immediately look at this cast and you're trying to make your assumptions about who is going to live, 
She's got final girl character qualities. Written all over her. Mm-hmm. The most uh, concerned, like a little bit more innocent. Mar- now, to be fair, Marcy is not like, Marcy is a very nice girl. And she she's just sexually active with her boyfriend, which doesn't make, the, you know, whatever. That's awesome. Yeah. And you know what? The only other person that has final girl written all over them is Jeff, because he's the most girliest Ken doll I ever did see. And I'll have to say that, you know, to compare and contrast between this and the remake, the characters, yes, are very distinct and they're cast extremely well. I agree. Yeah. Karen fits into her role and is written in this very clear, specific character. Uh, Jeff is a very interesting character and kind of original in that he's not the typical uh, Freddy out of the Scooby-Doo gang. Yeah, yeah, but but he is very prep school. He is. But, yeah. Yeah, and I, I enjoy him, but he's cast very, very well for that. Even Eli Roth as Grimm is like a very unique character, but then you look at the remake and it's sort of like they took all the scripts for all these people and all their names and just cast hipster douchebags into each role, not even caring what they looked like, what they sounded like, if they could deliver. They all looked like these homogenous little 21st century regular dudes that you would see at the closest beer tent. Mm-hmm. And the chicks are that the counterpart to that, if not cast out of vivid porn. So it just falls flat. So I don't want, I'm not going to gripe too much about the remake and the original because there are like vast, huge differences. Some of my favorite lines have been whitewashed entirely out of it. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of really interesting uh, things that were surreal or mysterious in the first one are explained away. In the second one, a lot of things just aren't there. Full characters change sex. Winston's a girl. Winston's a, a, a Winston's no fun at all. In the second, in the remake. So, like, I don't even want to talk about it anymore. I'm getting angry. Mm-hmm. Well, we can talk about we can talk about this version of Winston because this is just about when Paul encounters Winston. Winston, dear listeners, is the weirdest cop character ever. He'd be home at home in Super Troopers. Yeah, he's chugging a very- syrup, mustache rides. <laughs> so they encounter this guy who is a young cop, and he just loves partying. <laughs> you like channeled Winston. I could see Winston in your eyes. And you said, yeah, it's just like there's so many parties up here, man. It's just like, and you just lucked out because I know where all the best parties are. It's like, you can't go just yet, man. The partying's just started. You gotta stay here. You, you gotta stay here and party with your lady friend. This is a cop talking, by the way. This is literally the cop talking. Like, this is this is dialogue. Now, he is there because there, they'd heard a lot of disturbance. There were shots fired. There was screaming and yelling. A guy got lit on fire. So, yeah, someone called the police. So, also, to let you know, they're not that far from people. No, not really. They're, they're close enough to people. So, the police officer comes there, and it's crazy to me how they said, oh, yeah, this guy came out of the woods, and he fucked up our truck. And, and okay, when you look at the truck, yes, there's dents in it. Yes, there's uh, glass broken. It is completely covered in blood. There's blood everywhere. It looks like they fucking hit a guy with it. It, like, it looks like blood they, on the inside, the outside, everywhere. It's fucking painted blood. It looks like they fucking, it looks like a guy came out of the woods and we fought him off and we scared him away. Scared him away? Did you like fucking <laughs> disembowel and quarter him on the fucking hood of this car? Like that's insane how much blood is all over the place and how the cop who doesn't look to, he's probably, if I were to judge where this character is, he's probably in his like mid to late twenties. Yeah. 
So this guy is basically just, I'm, I'm, I'm a cop now. I guess I'm never going to leave this town and I'm just going to stay here. And I got a badge now. I like my idea that somebody accidentally deputized him at a party. <laughs> These parties, man. And he, so like, you know, Winston's your friend. Winston's your buddy. Don't you worry about it. I'm not going to, everything's going to be fine. Yeah, party man. I'll get you a tow truck up here tomorrow afternoon. Yeah, don't worry about it. We're going to stay here and get a party. He's like, we're going to have a lot of parties around here. And, and, you know, he, and he's just like offering all this weird information. He seems very interested in the fact that, not in Karen when he sees her, but like he's just happy that this guy has a hot girl that he can party with. And he fucking tells Karen when she comes out, like, everything's all right, ma'am. Just go back inside and drink a 40. Party. <laughs> party. <laughs> like you can't even to the very end until the very end really maybe the last time you see winston you're always kind of doubting that he's a fucking cop i know right right he's like it's like he's like hey is winston coming in today he's like yeah it's like have you told him that he's not a cop <laughs> right i can't i can't tell him that he's not a cop. like i would just break his heart it's kind of funny though like yeah it's yeah. just you just it's like why did you give him the uniform so i didn't he just showed up. Right? <laughs> right? That's when it strikes you as it really, really does. Yeah. He is a cop. He, he ha- he's got the squad car. He's got the radio. The squad car. You mean a squad mountain bike? Oh, my God. I forgot about that because he was driving a car later in the movie. He gets on a fucking 10 speed and gets out of there. This is what reminds me. It's, a, it's another slice of a David Lynch character right there because yeah. it's like barely believable. Barely believable that this human is treated with the respect that they are. Mm-hmm. I guess everything's going to be all right. We're, we're, we're just going to sit tight. Look, the cop seems to say that we're not in any trouble and, in fact, seems to be really adamant that we just keep partying. Now, the mood is definitely sour in the group. Everyone is pretty stressed out. But at the same time, yeah, I guess everything's going to be okay. We'll get a tow truck in here tomorrow and we'll be out of here. So I suppose we'll just uh, settle down and we'll tell the police what happened when we get back. Because we can't just pretend like we didn't let a guy on fire. Karen, uh, this entire time, is feeling very nauseous, not very hungry, and she wants to lie in bed. Well, she also, uh, Paul comes in to check on her and they start getting a little intimate. And, you know, he pulls his hand away from her and it's not just blood on his hand, just like chunky, chunky. Gelatinous goo. Gelatinous goo. And I love that scene because, you know, he's been trying to get with her sort of from the beginning. I guess this was his idea. Like, you know, finally, I'm going to like make my move after yeah. knowing her from seventh grade in this film, fourth grade in the remake a long fucking time he's been like sitting on his feelings so he's gonna make a move this weekend and he has this invitation to cuddle with her right so it's you know there's a lot of like sexuality in this movie it's not overtly sexualized no no it's very very natural so it is sort of a natural scene where his like hand is tracing down her body and in a really sweet kind of way in a sexy way Mm -hmm. and then to pull up a handful of blood this is where it turns into a a body horror as well Mm -hmm. because she is has deteriorated quite rapidly Mm -hmm. and sort of policing it a little bit because when he goes into the bathroom to wash his hand the bathroom's covered in gore so she's known that she was not doing good at all and didn't say anything to anyone there's a lot of that not saying anything to anyone. Mm-hmm. Shit going on in this movie. True. Kind of hoping that people won't notice, or maybe this will just clear up, or I don't know. But immediately, the worm turns on the rest of the group. Now, especially Bert. Bert freaks the fuck out and wants her to stay in her bed. Um, Karen 
wants help. She feels awful and she's breaking down emotionally. Um, they have decided that they're going to leave her in a room for now. They need to discuss what to do. Uh, they can't get out of there at least until the next day. So I guess for now, we're going to have to quarantine her the best they can. And they're going to do that by putting her out in the shed and with a bed. Not unlike putting somebody in the basement under the trapdoor when they're like infected by like be a demon or an infection, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They just go down there and carve themselves a witch. Yeah. I just got that he was doing a pun on Switch. Learn something today. It takes me a long time to get puns sometimes. <laughs> That's what you've learned? Yeah. You didn't learn the origin of this pun. You learned that you take a long time to get puns sometimes. <laughs> Normally I find you very quick. Very, very quick. I'm the one that, you know, five weeks later. Oh, in the middle oh, of the night you're like, oh. Shit. Wes is the funniest guy in the world. What's even better is five weeks later when I realized I made a pun. <laughs> <laughs> now... Also, there's a there's a. Why is this the shit? <laughs> Sorry, that took me a minute. One of the things that the, there's another X factor. Grim's dog is unleashed and just buzzing around and not happy. And when they're trying to fix the van or the truck, excuse me, because Bert has a little bit of rudimentary mechanical knowledge. So he was able to maybe at least get the truck running until they get into town so they can get proper help. There's a dog running around and just charged with, you have to shoot the fucking dog or at least scare the dog away because for some reason it keeps coming back to the camp very aggressively. Yeah, yeah. It's far more predatory than it would have even been as a guard dog and being a good dog like I had thought when Grim had had it. Uh, I'm very worried because it's off its leash and it was a good dog. Now it's not on its leash and Grim nowhere to be found and it's acting predatory. Mm-hmm. So there's something definitely wrong with the fucking dog. It should be shot or they should try and like scare it away and follow it to see if it leads them to Grim, right? Mm-hmm. So the dog's definitely in distress of one kind or another. But like we had this conversation when we were watching it. You're like, they're very interested in the task at hand and what is their immediate problem. Mm-hmm. They're not thinking about these larger problems. And I guess that explains why they fucking lie to each other one, like, yeah. whenever they can. Because it's like, let's solve this problem with a lie or let's solve this problem with scaring it away mm-hmm. and then we can just carry on. Carry on. Because we have we have jobs to do. We have to, I need to fix the van. We need to get the van. We, we're, are we going to get a tow truck? We need to get help. Now Karen is sick. We need to now... Put her in the shed. Put her yeah. in the shed because they... Put your do, hands off and problem they, solved. They do their body check. They, they, they make sure the, the term um, cabin fever also the fact that they have this um, infection is the fact that like very quickly they reach a boiling point that you would get with characters in isolation, even though they're not that isolated. Yeah. But the fact that, and they haven't been even isolated, let's say that they There's are. There's plenty of them too to bounce ideas off of, and that's part of the problem of cabin fever and just insular thinking and closed psychologies. Mm-hmm. is that there's no one to be the voice of reason or there's no one to call you out when you're not and there's no one to help um, solidify the voice of reason. So when somebody has a good suggestion, there's no one else there to be like, hey, let's go with what this person's saying instead of them basically all listening to Bert. Yeah, well, Bert is definitely the loudest and the most panicked. He's not being a dick about it, but he's just scared and he doesn't want to get sick and he doesn't know Karen. That's the other thing. It's like, this is your fucking friend. Yeah. And so, like, she's sick. I don't want to get sick. He's not suggesting that they fucking like burn her alive or something like that. He's just suggesting stay in your room. Okay. Can she just stay outside of the cabin now? And there's a fucking rabid dog, not rabid dog, but there's an angry dog around. We're going to guard you. We're not abandoning you. We're going to try to feed you. We're going to try to take care of you. We're watching here the entire time. That being said, you 
can't sit with us. <laughs> and I totally agree with that. And you yeah. know, the the shift starts to infect. And if you're going to talk about infections, like Bert's attitude does begin to infect the other people, mm-hmm. and how much he gives a shit about other humans' lives and stuff definitely starts to infect the others. Where Jeff might have been a little bit of um, a germaphobe to begin with, and like I said, he was the most Barbie Ken doll ever. I love Jeff as a character because I find him wholly unique. Something that a lot of filmmakers are very, very afraid to do. They're going to write a super feminine man or the gay best friend, or they're going to write the super fucking jock or the Freddy of Scooby-Doo. But they can't seem to blend them into a realistic fucking human being like Mm -hmm. Jeff. I really like Jeff's character. Um, But he even starts getting very, like, siding almost with Bert. Mm -hmm. Not going to be as aggressive, although he does show some aggression later. But he is a fucking inch away from chugging Javix to get this unclean thing away from Mm Walmart. That seems to be a pretty good... um sense about how people are when it comes to things like infection it's such an it's invisible right and so when it's this idea of a sickness and some guy came to the cabin who was sick now someone else is sick they don't know how it for all they know it is airborne yeah that's um for all they know it's through contact they don't know that it seems to be like you get the infection either getting infected blood on you or if you're consuming it if it's getting inside your body yeah, they're positive that it's fluid bar and they're positive that if you have the blood on you then you're going to be infected even if it touches your skin so it's topical but mm-hmm. and that's what that's what they're guessing so far because they're mm-hmm. no proof right mm-hmm. now when we have the characters they have their plans in order this is what they're going to do it is now daybreak and we are going to get karen in the van we have the van working somewhat and enough to drive into town uh, and they couldn't enough- at night because i had no headlights so they're like sort of um, in a rush now. Mm-hmm. And the tempers seem to be a little bit, they're, they're, they've been tempered. Paul gave them a very uh, impassioned speech about, we have to stop all this shit. We have to work together. We can do this. We have, we have to stick together, rely on each other, and talk to each other. No more yelling communicate and i was like i dig that because that's definitely the type of speech that i would be trying to give we're trying to calm people down where i'm just like let's talk let's not yell let's let's not hide things from yeah. people um about lying and it doesn't matter what you want think or believe right now and it doesn't matter if you want to be away from everybody when we need, we need to get out of this yeah we need to get out of this and we'll worry about who's right or what should have been done later yeah when because i mean paul very much cares about karen and obviously and wants her to be safe so while well, karen is absolutely spewing blood everywhere. She's a mess. This infection spreads so, so fast. And just like any flesh-eating bacteria, you really, you really have to get that fixed very, very quickly. Uh, or it will just keep getting worse and worse and worse. Now, she's not capable of helping herself. She can barely walk, and she is pleading for help. So it is kind of heartbreaking, and it is very gory. So. It's very gory. And not only that, but we've also realized that Bert is starting to show signs himself. He coughs up a little bit of blood, and then he looks down in his lower abdomen, and he's got some lesions. So he now is very much get her in the truck. He doesn't care about... He hides this from everyone. He does hide this from... I think he hides a lot of stuff. So he's sort of like the patient zero of the hiding shit from one another infection mm-hmm. and the temper infection. Um, but they sort of like look at him and be like, you don't look so fucking hot, Bert. And he's like, I don't feel so fucking hot. Let's go. You know? yeah. He doesn't 
admit that he's infected. But he doesn't. He's he's not shying away from it at this point. He and, and like he went from a dude that's like I don't want to touch her, keep her in the back, and then Jeff doesn't want to go in the back with her. He wants her in the front, or he's gonna. He's like I'm driving. I don't want her next to me. There's all this fucking shit going on. Bert very much is like I don't fucking care. Like which is a complete 180. But it's because Bert knows. Well, I'm already sick, so fuck it. Who cares? She can sit next to me. Let's go now. Now. Cue a huge fucking torrent of puke vomit. All with fucking blood everywhere. Spattering the ins- everybody and inside of the fucking truck. All over the place. And, <laughs> and then Bert having absolutely have enough. Too many people are like discussing and waiting around. He fucking like slams on the fucking gas and drives away. He screams back. I will get a fucking doctor. But we, I'm going. And so now Marcy uh, Marcy and uh, Paul and uh, Karen are left behind. So is Jeff. Jeff. Jeff is smart because, you know, one thing that we neglected to mention is earlier around the uh, bowling alley story on the campfire, mm-hmm. there'd been a bit of a bet um, between Bert and Jeff about not drinking water all weekend. Mm-hmm. Had to drink beer the entire time. Yeah. Grim did it with whiskey. Grim did it with whiskey. Mm-hmm. So much but um yeah so far jeff's winning because during the big argument and the big conversation where paul had basically laid down the law absent-mindedly burton had taken a drink of water uh-huh. and lost the bet so jeff is still going strong though he has drank nothing but beer so he grabs storms into the cottage grabs two six packs and storms into the fucking bush see you later fuck you guys i'm drinking beer yeah and he with like a hanky over his uh mouth and he basically leaves because his attitude is is like she's fucking dead already she doesn't even know it bert's sick he left with the truck you guys are all over Karen. You're compl- you're touching her all over. You're covered in her blood. I wish I had hands on her just thinking about this because it's yucky. It's very yucky. And and Jeff's just like, he's out of here. He leaves with 12 beer and just like marching off into the woods with a hanky. It's actually adorable the way that he's walking, just like marching and shaking and just not very sure-footed and barely carrying that stuff. He abandons Marcy, his girlfriend, and Paul. He has the most level-headed response. He does like he's He's appalled with their behaviors. He's appalled with the infection. Mm-hmm. And there's plenty of beer. There's plenty of beer. So he's getting away from the infection because he knows what? He's like, anywhere but here is where I'm going. Goodbye. Paul had an opportunity to 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 get some help. He went back to that place. Went back to that nice house. And when he was looking there to go to get help for Karen, he noticed that, um, oh, shit, there's a naked lady in there. She was putting out candles. And fucking, uh... He didn't mean to be lecherous. He simply looked in the window and gave him a moment of pause to drink in the situation like, oh, it is a naked lady. He wasn't like all of a sudden, you know, like, reaching uh, for his yeah, dick. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he's not doing that. He I was wasn't like, being lecherous. It was just that he noticed. Like, when we all see a naked lady, we all pause for at least a second. Even at that same thing when, you know, when Jack and Marcy were basically walked in the cabin and started fucking. Yeah. He went into the bedroom to see if they all wanted to go swimming and he opened up the door and he even paused for a second there. Not really like being lecherous, yeah. not like voyeuristic, yeah. but almost like with an artist's eye. Like, what is it that I'm seeing in geometric shapes together? Hmm. Yeah. So it was the same sort of look he gave, but of course the husband doesn't see it like that. Oh man, the husband with a shotgun and his robe probably open with a dong hanging out. His belt's hanging out. He just wanted to. I wanted it to be. And he's like, you're looking at my wife. And he's just like, I don't know why I give him that inflection. He doesn't talk like that. But 
he scares away Paul, and I guess Paul running back to the cabin so embarrassed that he fucked it up like that. Yet another point that gives you an aggravation in this film where it would be so simple for him to say to Bert, like, dude, this is this just happened. Uh, the guy thought I was like creeping on his wife. Let's wait 10 fucking minutes and you go because they haven't seen you yet. And you go up there like you don't even know me and get help. Because mm-hmm. they've obviously got a car. They've come and gone back and forth. They probably have a boat. Who knows what they have. They have stuff. They have things. It's, they have things it's, they it's, need. it's a modern home. Yeah. They probably have a fucking phone. Oh, my God. I need to think of that. I forgot phones existed. Well, a lot of times in these movies, you forget phones exist. Ooh, cell phones? No bars. <laughs> All right. And... That's one thing that Jeff does allude to, you know, like, oh, cell phone doesn't work. And that's the end of the cell phone problem. They're not, like, hoisting them in the air and, like, praying to the fucking gods of the cell phone towers that this shit will work. That's one thing I do really like about this movie. Well, basically, where we're at now is, oh, things are just not looking too good for anybody. Marcy has kind of resigned herself to the fact that they're all just waiting to die. She likens it to a plane crash where the plane's going down, everyone's screaming and depleting and wanting it to stop. And the only thing she wants to do is grab the nearest person and fuck them because it doesn't matter anymore. I wonder if that happens when planes are going down. Uh, I don't really know. Do they have cameras in planes that are crashing? Like any planes? Like, I, we should I have CCTV cameras just in every plane so that we can see if this theory holds any water. I have no idea, but I think... That'd be the most fucked up corner. I'd watch it. Anyways, they... So uh, her and Paul commence in some lovemaking. That's when we realize that Marcy has some permanent damage to her, done to her by the fact that uh, Paul grabs her back and then his hands leave uh, indents on... Not indents, but uh, red marks. Yeah, and then, yeah, it definitely starts to like welt and look like hives, and then her skin does start to deteriorate pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. It's a lot like the flesh eating <clears throat> disease that you love so much. Oh, yeah, gotta love it. Yeah. Now, I like how you're like scratching at yourself and you're like, <laughs> got the heebie jeebies. Making sure my epidermis is intact. Can I grab a flashlight? You can lift up your shirt and give you a little body check. Ooh, sure that'd be not. nice. What we have here is Paul having to leave the vicinity. He's got to try to find something. Yeah, there has to be something nearby, like a phone, a car, help of some sort. I don't know if he's off looking for Jeff at this point. There has to be something, but basically he needs to, well, he needs to, he needs to find help for Karen and he doesn't really know that Marcy's sick, but he definitely, she says to him, well, you did a number on my back. And so he probably has an idea that she's probably said too. Marcy in the meantime has decided that she's going to take a bath. She's really upset because her back really hurts and there's some pretty severe lesions on it. But she decides that she's going to uh, shave her legs. And that is of course revealing that one of her legs is just completely eaten at you had talked about the fact that she just wants to be a pretty corpse i think so because like you can look at the scene one of two ways that she doesn't know she's sick and she just wants to be an excuse for us as the audience it's fan service we want to see her naked and she's been naked quite a few times in this movie yeah not too too naked like if you want more naked marcy go to the remake um, but the way that she's behaving and the way that she's acting about it, it seems like she's sort of resigned herself to the fact that she's like, she's not too, too shocked about her skin peeling up with a razor. And mm-hmm. many, like men probably have the very similar reaction, but women who have to shave their legs, um, or some women more commonly, more regularly have probably had horrible cuts up their leg from bad razors or like broken razors or whatever. So they've had this sort of like experience and it is a pretty stomach turning, I 
I guess. But she doesn't seem too fucking freaked out by if you cut yourself shaving, you definitely jump and wince and oh fuck. Mm -hmm. But she doesn't. So it leads me to believe that she knew how fucking far gone she was before she put that shaving cream on. Yeah. And she is more like, I want to, I don't want to get hit by a bus wearing dirty underwear. Mm-hmm. You know? There was something, there's something to that. I remember uh, my grandfather used to, when he got, used to get really sick, like he got a really bad cold or something. He said one of the things he always liked to do was, he, he's like, don't sit around in dirty clothes and just wallow in your own filth. He said what he would do would put on his best suit, get a, get like do his hair, get like shower, get all cleaned up, put on his best suit, his best tie, and just go out there. And he said, I he's you would feel better. Yeah, you would just feel better. So it might be a little bit of that, like where she's just like, let me just get clean. I'm going to take a bath. I'm going to put on my robe and I'm just going to be a wonderful corpse. I really think that that's the uh, motivation behind her having a bath. It's true. But guess what? We forgot about our old friend, uh, no, Poocher. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't like him to begin with. So no. why would I expect you to remember his fucking name? I don't know. Dr. Mambo. All right, fine. Dr. Mambo number five. I do like that. The dog is the dog's an interesting little actor. But they don't have to, like, really portray him as a dog gone mad or infected dog. Aside from his being predatorial, they show the point of view of the dog, and it's all painted red. So we know that their dog's infected just from that camera angle swapping to his point of view. I do enjoy that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he's after Marcy. He's after Marcy. You can, you can. She's got a lot of open wounds on her. Yeah. And he's an aggressive dog, anyways. So he basically, she's trying to get into Karen's shed, but to no avail. The door is locked, and she's too panicked to get in. And then what? The dog eats her, uh, rips her completely oh, up. Pieces. There's like a foot with a stinking flip flop on it, and like a hand over there, and like a pile of guts over there. Yeah. Luckily, like she's been through a wood chipper. Yeah. Yeah, not the prettiest corpse. But uh, she doesn't have to worry about that anymore. Now, when Paul comes back, he immediately sees this scene of gore and disgust. And then he sees, when he goes into the shed to check on Karen, the dog is basically gnawing at her. And then the dog sees him, immediately lunges towards him. He gets away and finally reaches for a gun. And as the dog jumps on him, shoots the fucking animal this fucking mad dog is finally gone. Um, he goes back to check on... So if you're keeping score, I think that's two dead dogs for four dogs in the front. Yeah. So we go and check on Karen. He turns her over with his foot, and her face is just eat to shit. It's just... Would you consider it a catastrophic face failure, Wes? It is a catastrophic face failure with emphasis on the fact that she has no lips. Her teeth are completely exposed. Yeah. Now, I, like, when you look at her, you think that she's dead. Like, she looks completely dead. But uh, when you look a little closer, it's the fact that there's life in her eyes and she is breathing. She's in an incredible amount of pain and probably... Yeah, she would die soon, I'm pretty sure, because that dog was, like, really chowing down her soft little tender morsels. Yeah. Sweet meats, as it were. Yeah. So he grabs a shovel... And just bashes her head in. For those who enjoy long, drawn-out gore set pieces and a little bit of, like, incompetent heroes as well, go to the remake because this scene is fucking intense. Like, it is an intense scene in the remake. It's one thing that I will give it points for. The remake otherwise is forgettable. It's 
Oh, we have time. This is like the nicest way in the last like 24 hours I've heard you talk about this. Oh, I've been bitching about this night for like <laughs> since one in the morning. Yeah, since one in the morning, I was getting the angriest text messages. So it's been what? 13 hours. 13, 13 hours. hours. So now I've calmed down a little bit. <laughs> and I will say it is a piece of shit. Yeah. Pointless piece of shit. Except the, the shed scene does have its merits only for the shed scene. So, like, if you want to see anything interesting to do with the remake of Cabin Fever, find a clip of the shed I scene. As I go to YouTube, you could probably find that whole scene. Probably. Yeah. I wouldn't say it's worth it to watch the whole film for it, but... It's interesting. So he just bashes the head in of uh, his best friend and, and someone that he wanted to be uh, his girlfriend. So that's pr- pretty heavy shit. Now, yeah, it's the most important person to him in the entire planet. Uh, and that's going to come into play soon in, in a scene uh, that I uh, really like. Now, let's go uh, join our friend Bert. Now, what happened to Bert? Bert has gotten a lot sicker in the last little while. Uh, visibly sick. He's uh, his skin is definitely uh, starting to just peel off. Just they get skin slippage really quickly. It's weird how yeah. they rot from the middle epidermis. Yeah, inward. I guess it's it's yeah. it's pretty strange. But I mean, I guess if this is how you're establishing the infection works. Whatever. Yeah. Because uh, you're not specifically saying it's streptococcus. You're not specifically saying that. You're just saying it's some sort of flesh-eating bacteria is what's killing. So who knows? Uh, he goes into town, and uh, what do you want to say about this scene? Pancakes. so listeners that same young man that was sitting on that swinging bench dennis do not sit next to dennis do not sit next to dennis well guess what bert does not sit next to dennis (laughs) dennis sees bert and just something comes over this kid and i can't imagine what it does i think he might have been possessed by the ghost of jackie chan you are our martial arts expert. So tell me, would you say that he has, you know, an armchair, passive, imaginary sense of what martial arts is? Or do you believe he's trained? Because this could, so, like, as Dennis, not as the kid actor, I mean, as Dennis the character. So when, uh, I do have a, a, an extensive martial art background, um, for those who are interested. So looking at this kid, he looked to me like he was doing some kind of kung fu. The kicks that he was demonstrating weren't particularly impressive or polished. So it me it seems to me like he probably could have been watching it on, on TV and mimicking it. Mm-hmm. However, he does an aerial. It's just, yeah, that final move. That yeah, final just... move. So this kid, guys, he fucking screams pancakes and then gets up and in slow motion, while his father's coming out of the general store. Sort of like uppercut kick. Kick. Wow. He does he does a spinning hook kick. And then, and I'm just like, oh, I, I guess he's just mimicking something he saw himself. Then he does an aerial. And an aerial is, uh, it's a cartwheel with no hands. And in, in a martial arts sense, in the more flamboyant martial arts movie fighting in particular, the arrows are basically used to say, I'm going to do a no-handed cartwheel and I'm going to kick you. Yeah, this kid is envisioning a target when he's doing it. Yeah. He's not just doing a cartwheel with no hands. You can no. see any kid doing gymnastics do a cartwheel with no hands. Yeah. This kid is doing this with... Um, with intent of like... like Offensive like, intent. Yeah, it's like he's in fucking all back or something. Like he's he's going to like do this flip and it's going to be a kick and the kid lands and, uh, and then he runs up to Bert and bites his hand, like, draws fucking blood. That's Dennis' signature move. This fatality. Yeah. 
<laughs> but it's going to be what? His fatality now because he just bit a dude that's fucking completely infected. That's why I love the look on Dennis's face when he tastes the infected blood. Because he can. He can yeah. t- tell, which is crazy to me. So well, Dogs can smell cancer. Dennis can taste infection. Maybe. So uh, <laughs> Bert yells, what pancakes? <laughs> While his father grabs Dennis and says, if you're sick, that's your problem. But if you get my son sick, that's my problem. And then if I get sick, that's my problem. There's like, you have to stay over there with your problem and we have to take care of you guys so you're no one's problem anymore. This guy is talking about, we're going to kill you. Yeah. Immediately. And it's probably like a combination of the fact that like, you're outsiders, you're sick, my son is probably infected, we're going to kill you now. And there's no reason to believe that he won't do it. He wrestles up a posse, wrestles himself up a posse of guys. Does he ever? I'm going to go out there and, uh, you know, shoot some folks. Now, they don't seem that bent out of shape about the fact that they're just like, hey, they infected Dennis. Oh, okay. Go get the Guess we got to kill him. Guess we got to kill him. Yeah, and so kill. now Bert is heading back to the cabin at top speed while these motherfuckers are like aiming guns at him like a fucking car chase, like the Dukes of Hazard. If like the Dukes of Hazard got hardcore for a second and they're like shooting at him. And so now Bert's bringing some bad elements. And and that is an interesting aspect of this movie. And I wanted to talk about it a little bit because in horror, when you're dealing with people showing up and getting killed, what is that doesn't happen naturally unless you're very old or you're very sick. So that doesn't necessarily always make for good melodrama, especially in horror. Horror, you're like, what's killing you? Uh, a psycho with a chainsaw. Animals. A- animals, beasts, monsters, aliens. Um, I mean, very rarely do you have a movie, uh, even if it's an infection, it's 28 days later, it's a rage virus, so the people who are infected are killing you, or it's the crazies, something like that. This is very much a sickness that is killing you that is not making you aggressive in any way. It is actually sucking the life out of you, making you lie there and basically rot. Now, you have an adversary in the form of, I guess it's making this dog rabbit or aggressive, but once that dog is kind of taken care of, that menace is over with. They show time and time again, you can even scare that away. Yeah, so, I mean, it's not like this unrelenting force. It's not like canine, the robot <laughs> dog. You remember that fucking flip? No, I do not, but I was thinking more Cujo. Oh, Cujo, sorry. I was yeah. bringing up the shittier version of Cujo, which is canine. You should look that fuck up. Anyways. Um, it's a comedy the dog's pee is acid in that movie. Sweet. <laughs> if you ever wanted to see a Rottweiler with the, the cover is um, like a Terminator face, it's like half the, the, the dog's face is uh, is like a fucking robot. And it's Kane. Anyway, so the, the dog in the movie does not look like that. Super disappointing. Anyways, back to what we were talking about. Now, this, on we need an adversary. We need something. So I guess you're going to have the locals trying to basically... Get rid of this infection. Get rid of this infection. The only way they know how, which I guess is to just shoot a lot, or <laughs> and and then that'll take that disease. Now again, you have horror movies that have done this type of four final destination flicks. Uh, usually have this type of element where it's 
this invisible, all-powerful idea of death, which is killing the characters, but everyone dies with basically elaborate uh, Rube Gold machines in Final Destination. So that is where the entertainment factor comes from with those flicks, whereas this is different. So you need these types of killers. And so Bert is showing up and bringing these killers with him. Now, we still don't know where Jeff is. We still don't know what happened to Grimm. All we know is that the girls are dead. Paul is back at the cabin. Oh shit, here comes Bert. He's he's like he's brought company. Yeah. Bert is trying to elude these people the best he can, but I mean these guys know the lay of the land. They're gonna find him. So now comes my favorite sequence in this entire movie. These Backwoods fellows get into the cabin. Burst just sitting there with his gun. He's done. He's he's got no energy left, and he gets shot. His head just gets blown away like a hefty bag full of water and blood. And then Paul shows up and just fucking beats ass yeah he like murks the first guy from inside the door and then on to the next and then the 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 guy fucking falls backwards his shotgun goes off shoots buddy in the fucking stomach tessia dennis's dad bites it in the most like weird way and that's the second time i think in this film that i've noticed anyway where it's just sort of like happenstance and it's almost like this little tiny tiny machine just yeah happening within an instant like when they set the guy on fire Mm -hmm. uh it was sort of like just this bad weird circumstance of events happening in sort of like three beats same sort of thing happened here so they have the and so the the big the 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 larger of the trio that came to the cabin just gets screwed that screwdriver in the head crap right in the ear yeah and that guy drops like a stack of potatoes now dennis's dad is crawling away uh, 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 trying to fucking get away paul is I don't know what the direction... I don't know what Eli Roth was saying to uh, um, this guy when he was like, okay, this is how we're going to do the scene. But Paul is powerful-looking, predatory-looking, just stalking, just stone-faced, right? It has a lot to do with the camera angle. Like, you know, he's uh, of average height and maybe like an inch shorter than, than Jeff. Mm-hmm. He's not quite as big, built, and like wide in the shoulders as Bert was. So we're seeing him sort of like as a representation of just average fella mm-hmm. and now he's ang- like really angry looking for the first time he's tired looking dark circles under the eyes he's probably an inch away from looking infected to us and the camera angle suddenly is much lower making him tower over this guy and it's awfully dark he's shadowed where a lot of this is uh, probably shot on overcast days where you mm-hmm. get really nice gentle shadow filling light this is one of the more contrasty scenes making him look like very scary mm. and devoid of personality. And and he kills these guys with like not an ounce of remorse because of the fact that like you and I were discussing at, at, during the scene, he literally has just killed the most important person in his life. He killed her brutally with a shovel. He watched this woman who he went up to this cabin to have a wonderful vacation with, make his move, make this his girlfriend, maybe his wife one day. This is someone that he has clearly had feelings for for years and the second that he got really close to her got really intimate it all went terribly wrong and she turned out to be the first one to get infected cut to a little bit later 
she's bashing her head in with a shovel. If you could ever imagine your life in 24 hours changing so much with another person. And so now he, since he has done all that, do you think that he gives a fucking shit about these three hillbillies that have come to the cabin to kill him? Fuck no. He's going to kill those guys because they don't realize that like as hard as these guys are, even if these guys have killed before, they've never killed anyone that they've probably cared about, about as much as this guy's done. And the fact that like, and we skipped over this a little bit, but like he is infected for sure because he discovered the burnt body in the reservoir. And then- in Oh the, yeah, he fell into it. And, and so it, like a- He's curious, seen a couple spots on this. Yeah, so like a curious child poking a corpse with a stick, he feels the need to like try to like, it's weird to me because it's like when you look over and you see that body floating there in the water. Oh, that's all I would need. It's like, well, he's dead, right? Yeah. It's like he's fucking dead. Look at his body. He's fucked. He's dead. But he felt the need to grab a stick and turn it over just to like make sure this guy lying face down who looks like a burnt piece of meat. It's two things. Like uh, it's Greg Nicotero that did the special effects for this. Yeah, 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 cool. So you'll look at this corpse and be like, oh, yeah, it's totally a walking dead zombie. This is like a well zombie. This is like some, it looks like a fucking walking dead zombie. It's a really, really good effect. And it looks really, really realistic for an infected floater that has rotted for days and days and days and days in the hot sun in a stagnant reservoir. Ugh. Could you imagine? Barely. But like when I'm saying like, there's sometimes, you know, you would assume of a horror fan to be like, oh yeah, I totally want to turn it over with a stick. I want to take pictures and shit. You know, in really, real, real life, you fucking walk up to the reservoir, see a dead body, you turn around, you find an authority, right? Yeah. That's what you do. Yeah. Um, years and years ago, there were some friends of mine out on Lake Nipissing in my hometown. Uh, probably not ice fishing because it was probably midnight and they were likely very stoned. Oh. On acid. Oh. And they saw a a single person, as far as I recall, because the story was only relayed to me, a single person accident. Uh, someone had hit a pressure crack. And if you're familiar with pressure cracks, where the ice cracks due to the pressure, uh, one big shelf of ice can lift up out of the lake, and it looks like like a huge, like if you've ever seen icebergs and ice flows have huge fissures. It turns almost like a little tiny cliff of, of sharp, horrible, scary ice that you can, you know, a vehicle could be swallowed by. If you step on it, it could all of a sudden tilt and like put you under the next sheet of ice, like a very scary thing. Pressure crack can be very scary. Um, but I guess this guy in a fucking snow machine had hit one really bad and it had decapitated him. Wow. So they saw the idling and bloodied snow machine half in this pressure crack and way off into the in the distance because i guess it had thrown them or whatever like i'm not sure what had happened they could see the body but then even way further off they could see what was quite obviously the helmet with the head still on the side because there was blood everywhere like trailing to these things right Mm -hmm. and the person who had told me the story was saying like that is a the group split up at three times there because there was a group of them out there that had saw the accident. Half of them went back to the shore to get help. Half of them went toward the snow machine. And then at that point, half of the group went to inspect the body and the other half refused. And then there was one person who went even further to inspect the helmet. 
And my question is like, where would you give up? Where would you go back? You know, would you be the, the group of people that went to shore? Uh, you can't even answer that unless you're in that position, I don't think. Mm-hmm. But do you know going in that you're going to be the guy that's going to walk to a helmet? I don't know. I think like my personal curiosity, my morbid curiosity is really strong. But I don't know what because I, like if you are faced with gore pictures on the internet or something like that, I always look at them, even if I'm like, oh, that's a gore picture. I would click on that uh, um, because I'm just a curious dude, and and that's how I am. But in real life, I don't know. I've never encountered a grave accident like that in my real life, so I don't know. I think uh, I think at th- at that point, someone is very clearly, obviously dead. I think that. Um, and it's a group of people, I would probably, I don't know if I'd be able to resist the temptation. I was like, well, I want to go see the head. I don't know if I could resist the temptation because I'd just be, just by the virtue of the fact that I would, oh, I'm so curious. Because I'd be like, well, we don't all need to go get authorities. Like, and, and it's like, and I can't help this person. This person is beyond help. Yeah. So I guess I'll just go. And what if we go get the cops to rescue the snow machine sidling? Yeah. It'll run out of gas. Yeah. You know, whatever. It's not like it was a very strange question that that person had posited. Like, what group would you be? But then, of course, the question that's always kind of burned in my head is like, did the guy that ended up going to the helmet know he was that kind of guy going in? Or was like, is that a decision made as these decisions got made? And he didn't really look at the body and he was just like, is that just a helmet? Or is no, that a- this person knew yeah, very clearly. Okay. Very, very clearly. Well, which one are you? I don't know, man. I still don't know. I still don't know because I've never been on the lake at midnight on acid in the middle of a snow machine accident. I guess. Even and even like, when it comes to gore pictures on the internet, you know, I've seen enough like, electrocutions. You can feed me all the fucking electrocution gore you want. I'm not going to look at it because, I mean, like, I don't care. But I do follow, like, forensic pathologists. Mm-hmm. But that's different in my mind. I don't know. I don't know. But would I turn this dead guy in the reservoir over with a stick? No. I can answer that right away. I, I wouldn't either. But I'm glad they did for the purpose of the film because that's, of course, why this person did it, whether it's in his nature or not, to poke this corpse with a stick enough to turn it over. He just did it wrong. He's not very good at turning corpses over with sticks. Nah, then he completely fell into the water. Like, the worst possible fucking way that you could fall into the water with this fucking thing, this motherfucker did it. Like, he falls on it. Yeah. Like, swims around. Like, it just disturbs. <laughs> it's sort of like he fell on it, and then it, it capsized with him. Yeah, and yeah. then he gets up, tries to go back to the ladder to get out. The fucking ladder breaks. He falls back down into it. He's, like, spitting out fucking water. And I'm just like, oh, yeah, just get that all in there. Just get that even if that body didn't have a fucking fleshing bacteria infection you're sick now you're fucking definitely sick i was like you cannot fucking drink corpse water i was like well, i don't know a lot of people drank the elisa lamb corpse water for weeks apparently no one got sick well they just didn't taste good they said it tasted sweet and then it started tasting rancid but it tasted sweet and corpsey I guess. That was a weird case. Anyway. Still a weird case. I mean, yeah, yeah. Do you guys ever want to get, like, weirded out by watching somebody act very bizarrely in an elevator and then watch really creepy YouTube videos about it? Uh, check out Lisa Lamb. That's a, it's a, uh, what a trip. It's not a conspiracy theory, for fuck's sakes. But yeah, the yeah. original story, as it is in the news and the surveillance footage, 
lovely stuff. Very creepy. Very fun. Creepy. Very creepy. One, I, I discovered that at like three o'clock in the morning. Uh, and just what? And I was like, "What is this?" And I was like, "Oh my god!" I'm... I discovered that on the top floor of the hotel <laughs> that I worked in. Really? Yeah, creepy. Anyways, um, Paul basically has nothing going on uh, anymore. Like one of the one of the uh, uh, backwards people, the 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 guy with the long hair, he basically just dragged down into the basement, very evil dead, and fucking just to fucking hell and then fucking closes the lid. Meanwhile, he leaves, and we finally see Jeff. We finally see Jeff. He's just sitting there in a in a cave, just drinking, drinking his beers, just sitting there, just like I'm drinking. That's all I'm doing. Yeah, I don't blame him. That's and what he said he was gonna do. Then we're cut into Paul, where, where Paul has found a, a large cave. We think maybe this could be Jeff. This like could be Jeff. This maybe is a little reunion. Reunion. Oh shit. He's going to go deep into the cave. He finds a flashlight, keeps going deeper, trips, and then he looks back, and oh shit, we found our boy Justin, or Grim, I suppose, who's had his entire lower half just, you would assume that it was probably his dog. Yeah. That, that like, ate his whole lower half. I mean, half. this is how it got its taste for human flesh. It ate half its owner, and then it was like, mm, I'm running out of this, and it's tasting a little, little funky, so I'm going to go and find some fresh meat. Yeah, that's true. As fresh as you can get in the cabin fever woods. Mm-hmm. So now Paul is still running. Like he's just—he's got to go. He's like, if you can't stay at the cabin, it's a fucking gore mess, bloodbath. There's bodies all over the place, and I'm never gonna get help. Well, he encounters uh, our police officer friend, <laughs> Winston. Yeah, so- Winston's partying. Oh, he's having his underage drinking party. He's like, hey, thanks for the fucking tow truck. Oh, party man. Oh, hey, party man. Oh, yeah, no, it's like, I I meant to, but we called the tow truck, and then that one broke down, and then I had to get a tow truck for that tow truck, and... Sounds like just a big line of shit. Big line of shit. Now, Paul is completely covered in blood. He, it's not unlike, he has now basically become the hermit that they encountered at the beginning of the movie, which is a, which is a, a roundabout thing that uh, a lot of horror movies do, especially if you're encountering the girl on the road. And mm-hmm. then that by the end of that movie, the final girl becomes the new girl on the road, right? So this is kind of the same thing, although not really played up in the exact same way. <laughs> it's just a bunch of people playing guitars and fucking on harmonicas and drinking some beers. And well, Winston gets a call from the police chief that there's kids out in the woods killing each other and you're supposed to shoot them on sight. Winston's a good guy. I can't shoot party man, man. (laughs) Which I think is hilarious because it's sort of like when he gets that direction from his squawking little radio, he just looks up and he's like, can you repeat that last bit? (laughs) Which is like one of my favorite devices. Like, you heard the man kind of thing, right? Yeah. Where he's not saying like, you know, this is my orders and you don't know they're these figurative orders. It's made very clear that everyone hears this twice that mm-hmm. he's to shoot to kill. Yeah. Now the, the, his underage drinking friends try to like take matters into their own hand when Winston won't shoot them. And like something out of a fucking like naked gun movie, <laughs> like fucking one dude swings his fucking guitar, hits the harmonica player in the mouth and the harmonica goes in the guy's throat and he's like choking on it the harmonica player deserved it because he was being an asshole he was sort of creeping up on the suspenseful this guy's gonna get killed and he's like playing his harmonica in sort of like a 
chilling orchestral score in his mind, I suppose, with his mm-hmm. fucking harmonica. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He deserved to have it shoved down his yeah. throat. The rest of the kid's book after this, because, man, Paul, like, fucking takes Guitar Guy, which is like, be cool, be cool, be cool, be cool, which is, which is one of the most realistic, aside from how much these kids seem to throw away, throw out racial slurs and calling each other whore and saying so, because I definitely know a lot of people like that. The idea of a guy being completely overwhelmed and only thing he can sputter out is be cool, be cool, be cool, be cool, don't hurt me, basically. I was like, wow, that's a pretty uh, realistic dialogue because I can definitely see somebody doing that. My favorite is still shut up, slut. Like, all this time when you're thinking about, like, throwing racial slurs and being cruel and all that and swearing, I, I... Bert, for some reason, it's like the same reason that I love Steffler so much. Not just because it's like a constant stream of swear words, which I do like. I almost dislike Stifler because I like him so much. But Bert, I just, I don't know, man. I let him get away with all that. I don't know why I like it so much. He's deplorable. Well, you know what? He doesn't even have a head anymore. Who barks shut up slut at anyone? To, to a girl who's like not... Like, and it's his friend. It's his friend who's not doing anything. <laughs> she's hardly even, she said two words in yeah. a more calm, nice, collective word. Then. Yeah. Barks, shut up, slut with so much venom. I don't know. I love it. But this be cool, be cool, be cool is very, you're right, very, very realistic. And it is just these things that just off the top of the head. And I guess it was written like that. I'd have mm. to ask Mr. Roth if he just like, wrote this in like some writers write in a real frenzy you know you get an idea and it just all comes right and you just write it all out the first draft is never impeccable but sometimes the first draft just has gem after gem after gem that you it just comes out the way that the story is in your mind and you can't really write at the speed of your mind you can't usually write at the speed of your imagination but some stories come out very fucking close mm-hmm. So that was what it seems to me that happened here. He incapacitates Winston and he's on the lamb again. Eventually he is going to encounter in like a ridiculous scene. This like the last bit of this movie is so fucking weird because now he is driving along in a car. One of the kids that he's, he stole one of the, the cars and uh, he hits a deer and the deer is the most fake-looking deer I've ever seen in anything. Worse than... No, not worse than. That's not fair, because I really had some fundamental problems with the Ring 2 remake, the CGI deers. I was like, this is just looks bad. This looks real bad. But this looks like a like a stuffed animal that you would buy for $50 at like a Toys R Us or something like that. And then they just, just, it, it doesn't move like, and it has like legs that move, but it's clearly, I'm like, okay, that's clearly just like, like legs that are someone's just going like waving their arms yes, with like, to give it mobility. And yeah. the rest of it is just like, it's a stationary deer. It looks like shit. Why well, have this? But I guess you need to have that because um, he needs to get out to the road again after stealing a car he eventually gets picked up by a pickup truck driver who then just literally throws him like a sack of garbage on front of the hospital. And then guess what? Good news, guys. He's in the hospital and he's all cleaned up and he's standing around. Our authorities are standing around him while he's feverishly trying to explain himself. They're trying to figure out where he got this infection, this infection that they're aware of. Where in your mind, you keep thinking like, tell them it's in the water. Just say it's in the water. It's all you need to say. It's in the water. It's in the water. Because they keep saying, like, the one cop is very clearly like, we need to know how you and your friend got this infection, mm-hmm. which is like probably the most level-headed thing anyone has said, did, or asked in this entire fucking movie. He doesn't get a straight answer because he's delirious, unfortunately. Paul's pretty far gone by this point. Cleaned up, but pretty far gone. Mm-hmm. And he just keeps mumbling about 
their situation. A guy in the woods, he attacked our car. We live on fire. We live on fire. It um, doesn't say it's in the water. And he is the first one that figured out it was in the water. We know he knows it's in the water. Mm-hmm. We know he was out to warn his friends that it was in the water. But he seems to have forgotten that simple fact, poor guy, and unfortunately can't alert the authorities that it's in the water. Mm-hmm. The authorities are going to take matters in their own hands, which is to say they're going to tell Winston to take old Paul for a drive. We're still almost not sure still that Winston's even really a cop. No, he's like, oh, we're going to party, man. We've got a lot more parties to have. And he's just like sitting there drinking a beer while he's driving with like a bandage over his head. Yeah. And you assume that Paul's in the back, although you don't see him. And then you hear him kind of like no. groggily. And then the cops, uh, then we see that our old friend uh, Jeff, who's survived the night. He's not infected. He goes back to the cab. For whatever reason, he keeps walking. And I guess he's probably lost his way and circled back and then he's going to the cabin it was weird to me why he decided to go into the cabin because it's like what are you going into the cabin for you know i'm gonna help a defend jeff it's for more beer right yeah maybe. he's hung over as fuck i'm sure so he needs hairy dog for one maybe he's looking for his friends maybe but he's elated because he's managed to survive mm. and and I love this scene. It's a, it's a pretty funny scene. You see it coming. You're like, yeah, I know exactly what's going to happen. Because uh, I, I've seen similar scenes like this in other movies before. Oh, but, you know, if you want to live in, like, I want to live in the world of cabin fever as it's the only movie in the entire planet, I I want this to not be how it ends. It's such a beautiful little scene. Why can't he be our final boy? But I made it. I made it. He's elated. He looks so fucking stoked on life. And then he he goes up back outside of the cabin and gets lit the fuck up. Cops fucking shoot him until they have no bullets Just left. Click, in the, click, 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 click. Yeah. Then they go into the basement. Well, they open the basement lid, and of course there's another guy there. Um, they drag all the bodies out into uh, they drag all the bodies out into a big pile. They burn the bodies. They go into the they look into the basement. There's a guy there. They just fucking unload on him. He's still alive, but he's clearly infected. And then they just burn it. Just burn everything. And and then that's pretty much it. That's and Winston's there. And this is the one scene where you're pretty sure he is a cop because he's in full uniform. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's in full uniform. Paul is nowhere to be found. Although we will eventually see that when two kids are gathering water. Uh, in the river, they're going to pan to the side, and they were going to see uh, a very dead Paul just lying kind of half into the water. Yeah, another circular thing. He's now the typhoid Mary. He is, yeah. Um, I don't know why they decided to be so diligent about killing the, like, we're going to take, we're, we can't help Paul for some reason. We don't know how to help him. So we're not going to help him. We're going to take him out of the hospital and throw him away. We're going to go to this place, burn all the bodies, burn, I guess, maybe even burn the cabin down, essentially, burn it all. And then we're going to walk away like nothing happened. But then for some reason, we're not going to burn Paul's body. We're just, I guess we're going to have Winston, who's maybe a fuck up, who doesn't necessarily follow orders because i mean he would he did we miss something where like winston stopped to take a piss because he'd be drinking all day i don't know like, stumbled out of the back of the cruiser because it wasn't locked because i would i would gone. assume like winston is just an idiot and a screw-up and so he's just like oh, i'll just dump the body and that's good enough and so he throws him near the water and then that's the end of it right yeah um except for the fact that like kids are now filling up a big gold thing of lemonade and 
then they're back at the general store and they're serving all the cops lemonade and to give you the sense that this infection is going to spread. Let alone the post-title sequence, post-credit sequence. Yeah, there's a post-credit scene. Of beyond a lemonade stand infecting a couple townsfolk, there is a spring water truck leaving the area. Mm-hmm. No doubt filled from the exact same water that's being infected. Mm-hmm. The one thing I still can't figure out is why Winston's hair is black. It's been light brown for the whole film, but at the very last time we see him, it's black. Well, sometimes people just want to go get Speaking their hair of black, down. there's sort of like a, a weird patching of uh, one of the jokes at the very, very beginning where I dropped the N word. You did, yeah. In this film, they dropped the N word because yeah. there's a gun. And this shop, and the shopkeep, who's kind of jovial and kind of friendly for backwoods it's cool guy. Kind of, kind of like backwoods Santa Claus. Yeah, and they're like, well, what's a box piss for? It's for hunting. And a gun for hunting? No, it's for niggers. And it's like, fuck, what? That's Good a, that's, that's a yeah. fucking, like, scary thing to say. Okay, I guess we're out of here. Yeah. Um, and then you come full circle to the, to the end, which makes it such a fucking hilarious thing. Like, yeah. I love that. And it's sort of like... A lot of people like don't like rape revenge films and stuff like that, and they get halfway through and they're like, I, I don't like this, I can't watch this. And many people will say, Oh, but you need to watch her get her comeuppance for all that rape to yeah. be explained and be okay, which is kind of fucked up when you think about it, but you should still watch films till the end. This is a good example of watching films to the end to sort of like explain the motivations at the beginning. Um, I'm not even going to explain any more than that. Okay. For people who haven't seen Cabin Fever, I think they can go and have their uh, sensibilities offended to start with. Okay. And then watch it past, like, beyond that point, you might as well watch all the way through the credits to see the fucking Springwater truck. You know, I know most people I know that have watched this film were to wear the Springwater truck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this movie panned out for Roth. And pans out for people who, who like this type of thing. It's a unique beast, and it was coming out at, at, in an early time when a lot of horror was very different. But this was Eli Ross's own little thing that he wanted to do, and it was very much his baby. Then, of course, he lit the world on fire with Hostel. Cabin Fever went on to make uh, a couple of sequels, and, of course, uh, we've alluded to it several times, uh, a 2016 remake. Like, they've never come close to... The sequels have never come close to capturing what the original Cabin Fever did. And I think that that post-credit scene, as I was talking to you, I was like, I feel like you could have left it there. You could have left it there and not ever done a sequel. And and this would have been a wonderfully self-contained, weird oddity of a movie. But now, as it stands, it's a franchise. Basically, so, I haven't watched I watched part of the second one. And so only remember I don't like it. So the sequel's... Uh, are not worthy successors. They're not adding anything new. And honestly, the story ends with a spring water truck. The implications are devastating. Yeah, that's all you need to really know. Yeah. What do we got next for? Coming up next, we're going to watch Demons. Oh, we're getting into some Ario Argento. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Some Baba goodness. You're going to be excited going back to the world realm of Demons. Yeah, we haven't been there since what, Night of the Demons? Yeah, Night of the Demons. Yeah. Which was a trip. So we'll be back with some 80s goodness. Things get a little too modern around here. Then I forget what we're doing after that, come to think of it. But hopefully it's not something 80s. <laughs> I like uh, jumping around in the time. You'll be line. disappointed. Oh, why? What is it? Do you remember? 
Yeah. We haven't technically sat down for three weeks, so forgive me for not being on the ball. Uh, so uh, right after Demons, we have the stuff. Oh, yeah. And that's also a request as well. That is a fan request. And uh, we have more fan requests coming up that we've gotten recently on Twitter, and uh, we'll do that one as well. Yeah, we had had a, send, a fan request where it came down to... Society or the gate? Yeah, where it came down to society or the gate. And I I love the gate. I've thought of the gate many times. I watched it when it came out when I was a kid, and I watched again 10 years later and was like, on one hand, it was a little more ridiculous than I remember. Now, on one hand, it was way more fucking awesome than I remember. So I'm really excited to see that again. Society... Uh, Fine Torture Cast has that coming up in like five or six episodes from now. Mm-hmm. So definitely tune in for that. I, I can't wait to hear them talk about that. And I've watched it myself recently and I fucking love that movie. Mm-hmm. You'll definitely want to listen to Bind Torture Cast right after you're done listening to this. If they've dropped their next episode, What's definitely that? tune in. Why? Because why the fuck not, man? Why the fuck not? <laughs> Why the fuck not just drop everything you're doing and go listen to Bind Torture Cast right fucking now? Okay. And on that note, I'm Wes Knight. And I'm Typical Lydia. And you've been listening to Dead Air.